Okay, let's do this thing. Nothing like fixing a uh, critical bug not 60 seconds before we go on the air. I saw that five <laughs> seconds ago. I just saw that. That was great diagnostics from the both of you. I'm very impressed. I'm actually, I'm very annoyed right now because the headphones I'm using, the left driver uh, started rattling today. It's only resonating with certain low frequencies. So like when Casey talks, Hi. I hear a little rattle in my left ear. But <laughs> when I talk or when John talks, I usually don't. But when Casey gets nice and deep, really close up, then I'm like, oh, God. Hey, Marco. How's it going? So try to avoid your sexy radio voice <laughs> this week. <laughs> I'll just be sure to do it like this for the whole show. How's that sound? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> That'd be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> I am incredibly pleasantly surprised with uh, maybe it's the quality of our audience. So last week we began the show with a pretty big segment about Black Lives Matter and racism and police and and all the and privilege and and all the issues that were that are you know going on right now and have been going on for a while. I thought we were taking a risk, and we got hundreds of responses. I mean, we must have heard from 500 people. And of that number, I think three were even slightly argumentative. Like, I wouldn't even necessarily classify them as negative. Like, they were just, like, slightly argumentative. And all the rest were universally positive. And so I think this this both shows that our audience is awesome. But also this gives me hope for just the public in general that I, I think it, it it shouldn't be risky to say Black Lives Matter. And to say that we have a racism problem in this country and to say that we have a police brutality problem. Like, that shouldn't be a risky thing to say, but it is. And it has been. But I think now it's not. Now I think it has reached a critical mass of public realization and public acceptance that, like, oh, yeah, this is actually a really big problem. And it's not it's not risky to talk about it. It's not risky to say, oh, yeah, we really have this problem. Like, no, it's a real thing. And that in a weird way gives me hope that we're making some progress on these issues. And I know we have a long way to go and it's not going to be fast progress, but it's not risky to talk about this anymore. And that's a really good first step. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I was, I was braced for impact um, because whenever you put anything on the internet and you have more than 10 people that look at it, you're going to get obnoxious feedback. Oh, it's yeah. just it's it's part of the the contract the social contract of the internet and i mean to give you some idea like this might like saying black lives matter so emphatically around all that discussion of privilege and everything last week i thought again i thought this was going to generate some controversy among the audience we, the things that have generated more controversy than this would be things like if we said like the sky is blue or if we said you know apple apple's doing pretty well these days like we, we anything we could possibly say generates way more argument and way more negativity than that did. And so again, like I this I think that's amazing and I'm really I'm really pleased with with that ratio of positivity that we got. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about it and I I wanted to just one quick moment thank the both of you guys especially for talk, speaking so eloquently about it um, and for our listeners for taking the time to listen to it as well and actually our first bit of follow-up uh, relates to that john can you tell me why we need to recount this other than that it's a good idea to revisit this periodically i'm inlining for performance purposes uh <laughs> we, had, we had a whole bunch of links in the last episode about the resources that you could go to learn more and do more and stuff like that and people uh, were very nice in recommending uh 
things to to add to the list. In particular, a lot of people were recommending books. What we had linked was a page that itself linked like 16 different books. So most of the recommendations for books that we got were actually books that were already on that page. So I just wanted to surface them. And so we're not going to have a million notes this week. I just wanted to pick out like the three or four uh, handful of books that were most recommended. They will be in line in the show notes this week and not buried uh, one link away under a page. So check it out if reading is your thing and you want to learn more about these issues. Yep. I plan on reading um, at least one, maybe two of these. There's another book I, I'm going to read this summer, but I have a couple of these on my reading list now. If I have time, I hopefully will be able to add many, many more, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, John, you were making fun of me last week about doing some edits inside of a web form, and Martin Bree has some thoughts about that. Uh, Martin writes, regarding John's last remark about never editing in a text field on a web page, I've also been in the same camp and trying to spread the message. I did that no later than yesterday with my brother, who's currently taking his exams, which are occurring online due to the COVID-19 measures. In this particular case, that was disastrously bad advice. He quickly learned about the school's anti-cheat features. For some of the questions, they simply blocked pasting text. Well, and on others, they apparently check at the speed at which text is entered. And if that's too fast, it gets cleared. And I assume you also might get flagged as a potential cheater. I should have anticipated this, but I didn't. And it made my brother lose a bunch of time. See, I was right all along. <laughs> See, I, I think this is one of the ways like schools when when I went through school and again, disclaimer, I'm a terrible student, etc. But, you know, when I went through school, when I stumbled through school, <laughs> we didn't have much technology in the school like you know i i went i graduated from high school in 2000 from college in 2004 and that was like i never even saw anybody use a laptop in a classroom wait not in college no really that happened like right after i graduated like it was when that whole wave came in when i got to college most people came with a desktop computer a cheap PC desktop computer. Only a few, usually the rich kids, had laptops, and you'd occasionally see them with it, like in the library. But they, you would never see anybody in the classroom using a laptop, and and, and that seemed to start literally like right after I graduated, like in like two that like I graduated in two thousand four, and it seemed like around two thousand five is when everybody had laptops in classrooms, <laughs> but I never saw one, and you know I never took a test on a computer. I never like it, it, I wanted to. I would have loved that at the time. <laughs> I was dying to use computers for anything, but uh, but you know we we only had them for like the computer science class, and that's about it. And so I missed this entire wave of classroom technology that is now ubiquitous. I've never seen a smart board. I don't have a great idea of even what it is. Oh, they're so nice. You've missed out on so much. <laughs> and we're the same age. In fact, actually, that reminds me, uh, happy birthday to you because your birthday is tomorrow. Uh, thank um, you. And so we are we are effectively the same age, you and I. And I didn't get to use a smart board until my second real job, but they were amazing at the time. Smart boards were uh, imagine like one of those mobile whiteboards that you would perhaps see in like school or whatever, but instead of being a traditional whiteboard, if I remember right, it was a, or maybe it was a whiteboard. I don't remember. It's been so darn long, but anyways, it was something like a screen projected on the whiteboard or the whiteboard itself was a screen or something like that. But the, so the point is it was digitizing everything you were doing. So you could draw using this like fake marker and then you could select what you've drawn and move it around. And as someone who loves doing um, like whiteboard uh, diagrams and things of that nature, it was really convenient because not only could you move the stuff around when you realized, Oh, I got to shimmy something in between these two boxes, but also you could just easily make a PDF and send it to your coworkers or whatever. Smartboards are super cool. I never, never had the opportunity in college, but they were great in, in the real world. Sorry. I totally interrupted, but happy birthday. No, I mean, I, I mean, I interrupted you. That's my job on the show, I guess. I, <laughs> I've never even like 
I think in all of college, and like I, I think I had one professor who gave presentations as PowerPoints. Like I, I never had that either. Like I, like it seemed like the old school way of doing school ended right as I left. <laughs> <laughs> and now everyone's on PowerPoints using smart boards or things like that, using digital test taking on computers. That's all new to me. And so, you know, if you look at the the like quality of software on average, you know, up like kind of near the top, you have like most consumer level stuff made by good companies like Apple who are de- pretty decent at it. That's like, you know, nice, usable, thoughtful software. And geez, I mean, even Apple has their problems in that area a lot recently. But believe me, it's way better than a lot of things. Then, you know, about a little step down from that, you have, like, the general world of PC hardware. Like, well, you know, it's sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's all right. You know, it's not to the best standards, but it's still, like, generally kind of usable. Then kind of, like, down a bit, you have, like, specialty software for, like, certain industries, like like my dentist software. And that's, eh, it's getting a little bit hard to use, a little bit crappy, a little bit, you know, hostile and then you take a huge step down and you have enterprise software. And that is a disaster. It's impossible to use. It's terrible. It's user hostile. It's terribly designed. And then even another giant step below that, you have what is usually education software. <laughs> like the the incentives and the factors and and the you know the costs and benefits and everything are not set up at all for enterprise software and especially for education software which is like enterprise software but with even less money it's not set up at all for that to be usable or friendly or well designed or even remotely well maintained uh, because schools have very special needs and usually no money and so it's like and and it's you know similar enterprise software where like you're making a deal with a whole district or a whole government where you have to you know you're dealing with like huge committees and and budgets and the public and politics and all sorts of other stuff so i can't even imagine how hostile a lot of the software must be in education these days i mean we only see a we we like scratch the surface with just like whatever we have to use because my kids in school as like you know the parent portals of various things which are always terrible that's and that's like the bare minimum i can't even imagine what it's like to be a student in this stuff these days i remember um I've told pieces of this story on the show before, so forgive me, but when I was in college, I went to school with a home-built, you know, tower monstrosity, which at the time was <laughs> me not too. unusual. A full tower, too, not even a mid-tower. Yep, yep, yep. Because yep. <laughs> the full tower had more drive bays. Yep, and I, I believe I had two CD, like I had a CD-ROM drive that was super fast for reads. Then I had a CDRW drive that was not that fast for reads, <laughs> yep. but then what you could do is you could duplicate CDs without having to like cache it on the hard drive for a little while. You could do a straight rip from one to the other. Well, you could, but like, you know, that was a risk because you, you like the, the buffer under run protection on the writers was never that great. Like, oh, well, I mean, true. you, you got to whip out your Nero burning ROM game and like, you know, rip it to an ISO first <laughs> and then use Nero, you know, to burn with like all the protection, try to try to copy all the games with all, all their stupid protection discs and everything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, God, this is a walk right down memory lane. But anyways, um, but I, I think I had what was it wasn't a zip. Was it a jazz drive? That was like a zip drive, but higher capacity. Is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah, it was one gig instead of 100 megs. Yep, I had one of those, which I loved at the time, even though I barely ever used it. Um, but after a couple of years, like I think it was my 
junior, maybe senior years, I I got myself a ThinkPad, um, which was in no small part because dad worked for IBM at the time. And I remember I thought I was hot stuff. And this is the part I've told on the show before, because this ThinkPad was one of the first that you could add a daughter card internal to the ThinkPad. It had like a little um, a little door that you could unscrew and open, and you could put a Cisco 802.11b wireless card within the computer. And so I had a wireless connection in the like 10 buildings on campus that were set up for wireless, uh, but I had a wireless connection without one of those PCMCIA dongles hanging out the outside. You remember that? Where, you know, you had that like antenna hanging out the outside of the machine. This is a, around the same era as if you were really cool, you would have one of those, what not, not like slot loaded, but like one of those spring ejected uh, Ethernet or modem jacks. You know what I'm talking those about? Those things, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked those didn't immediately break on every use. Agreed. Completely agreed. I believe it's called an X-Jack, if I remember correctly. Ah, uh, you might be right. I, I don't even remember. But anyways, um, I bring all this up because one of my favorite... Oh, you are right. Look at that. Very deep, good poll there, Marco. I'm impressed. I read a lot of computer magazines, had a lot of ads for these things. <laughs> what if, uh, I never actually owned one. <laughs> one of my favorite uh, memories of school, which is probably indicative of how poorly I did in school, was when we were in a class. It was myself and a couple of friends, and we all had laptops, and we were using Waste. And nobody remembers this, but this is Justin Frankel, who did uh, Winamp. When he was at AOL, he put together oh. a peer-to-peer like chat app that was all like super encrypted at the time. Maybe it was easy to break, who knows? But at the time, it was like super encrypted, and you could make like a chat room and then have like person-to-person chats. And this is when AOL Instant Messenger was very much a thing. But we were like, "No way, man! The school might find out that we're chatting during class if we use AOL. So we got to use like this super encrypted waste thing." And it was so stupid. But I was a stupid kid, so what are you going to do? Um, but I remember doing that with a couple of friends during class, and, and it was was extremely enjoyable having like a back channel as we were supposed to be listening even though we really weren't i love justin frankel because like yeah he was a guy who made winamp aol bought winamp <laughs> in like so the late ridiculous. 90s or early 2000s because they you know they wanted relevance and they didn't know what to do and they were old old people and they you know, they had more money than sense and had no idea what they were doing and mp3s seemed like a new thing that they could take hold of and maybe do something with so they bought winamp and meanwhile justin frankel the developer or at least one of the developers was like one of the most like you know radical like activist like anti-establishment developers of, of yeah, the yeah. era and he just kept making and releasing things that just totally undermined aol i don't know what his deal was like like what how he didn't just get fired like i, I don't know whatever the contract he had with them was was amazing <laughs> because he was able to just release stuff that just constantly like poked them so hard and somehow get away with it and and he just he seemed to not care at all which i just i love so much yeah i completely agree do whatever happened to him like recently what has he been up to i don't know i hope he's not some horrible person oh who knows uh it doesn't atp's live stream eventually boil down to shoutcast or is it or is that not correct oh yes sort of yeah so we are hosted we, we host this live stream on uh an open source app called icecast which is basically the successor to shoutcast okay shoutcast was the streaming server protocol for mp3s basically that uh, that i'm pretty sure justin frankel or at least the winamp team uh initially developed i think um and 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 then icecast kind of evolved out of that and i think it has replaced it and it's better in a few ways but the basic idea is the same like it's it's one of the many things that, that i love about mp3 is, is that like the broadcast protocol is amazingly low tech you just like i i run an app on my computer audio hijack that streams the mp3 bytes that we're recording here 
to the server and the server just repeats it back to anybody who, who listens and the protocol is super simple it's like it's basic you know text to connect and then it, it shoves binary at you that's just the mp3 and mp3 decoders are super simple they just look ahead until they see 11 ones in a row and start decoding there like and it's just and it just works <laughs> it's amazing like it, it really like it's so this is one of the reasons i love working with, with mp3 so much like it's in many ways it's so low tech that it makes it makes it very easy and powerful to work with Oh, that's right. Uh, somebody in the chat put a link to uh, Kakos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's his current company. And I'd forgotten that my favorite software to make animated GIFs of screen recordings. Uh, what is it called now? I can't remember. <laughs> Shoot. Oh, gosh, it's going to drive me nuts. Click it. That's what I use. Lice cap. There you go. Uh, it's like the simplest, ugliest, like clearly cross-platform, but does the job well uh, screen recording software. Well, anyways, uh, that was done by Justin Frankel and, and Cocos, uh, or Cocos. I don't know what it's, how, you, how you pronounce it. But anyways, it was done in semi, sometime after he left AOL. This is what I was forgetting. I, I knew he made something that really poked AOL on the side. He made the Nutella file sharing network. <laughs> That's what he, <laughs> as he was working for AOL, I'm pretty sure. Which was a major media conglomerate that owned a lot of like you know music and stuff. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So I oh man, <laughs> he's the best. Anyway, what were we talking about? I don't even know. Oh, writing into web forms. <laughs> the moral of the story <laughs> is yeah, don't write on web forms, kids. Unless you're in school, in which case your software probably sucks. Don't try to paste into web forms because they'll think you're cheating. Yeah, my my son had to take an <laughs> online uh, an AP test online and it had similar measures that was the same test where there was that story where people were at some point in the test apparently students are instructed to do something on a piece of paper and then take a picture of it with their phone or something or upload a picture of it i don't i don't know anyway that's that's what they were doing and a bunch of kids took pictures with their iphone and then tried to upload it but the iphone was taking heek pictures instead of jpegs so they tried to upload the heek to the website it crashed because it couldn't it couldn't process them and then everyone was flipping out and it's under a time limit or whatever my son avoided that uh by dumb luck because the way i had him doing the pictures because he doesn't know how to use computers so as i said like just take the picture on your phone and then just keep photos open in the background and just wait a couple seconds and you should see the photo you just took on your phone appear in your photos app because you got the photo stream thing going and then drag it out of the photos app onto the desktop which is the only place that he knows exists like most people and when you drag it out of photos onto the desktop it turns it into a jpeg and so he was uploading jpegs and not heeks even though his phone was taking heek pictures anyway Hopefully, uh, with all of the COVID stuff, everybody's online test stuff will get better. And the, the thing trying to prevent you from pasting into the form, like some password fields do that too, which is horrendous Ugh. because it defeats password managers many times. But I know what they're trying to do, but it's punishing people for essentially bad, uh, for good habits. Because if you are under time pressure to write something substantial into a text field as part of a test, it does make sense to do it someplace else where you know it's secure and then only put it into the web page when you're ready. But of course the software interprets that as, Oh, you must be cheating because you're copying and pasting it. And I suppose if you just edit the node and the DOM and stick the text in, it probably won't know, but again, they might, <laughs> they might accuse you of cheating and it's all just very fraught. So I feel like this is a cultural issue more than a technological one that eventually once kids become accustomed to taking these kinds of tests online, they'll learn all the things that you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And I guess the the backup mechanism is every once in a while copy and paste it out of the web text field into a text file so that if the web page does crash, you'll still have the text. Anyway, online tests stink. Boom. 
so when I got angry last week about my uh, Samba SMB woes, I was expecting to be the only one. And if you recall, this is when I haven't used my computer in a little while. I go to reach like my Synology, for example, and I see a message in Finder. The operation can't be completed because the original item for whatever can't be found. And the only way I knew how to fix it was to do a kill all finder and then try the same thing again. And it would always work, you know, pretty much immediately. And I got a lot of varied feedback about this and including from John, actually, after the show. And one of the most or the two most important things I think I, I can share confidently right now is that, first of all, you can go to the go menu in Finder and then connect to server, which is also done by command K. Should I mess with John and say K command just to really tick John off? Anyway, you can use command K to go to this menu and then you can reconnect that way. And supposedly, I haven't actually had to try this and I'll explain why in a moment, but supposedly that'll let you uh, reconnect without having to kill Finder, which is excellent. And then John, amongst others, had suggested, well, how are you getting to the Synology? And to answer that question, what I was doing is I was looking at locations in the sidebar of Finder. And yeah, I see disk, disk station, which is the thing that Synology calls itself. Yeah, I see that in the sidebar, and I would just click that and drill into the particular folder I wanted, and that was that. But John, you had recommended uh, one of several different ways to get there. Um, there, the Synology has like its own dynamic DNS system where you can get yourself like a internet visible host name, even if you're you know NATed and so on and so forth. And I could choose that, but it also occurred to me that since I'm running the Pi Hole, I have set up, <laughs> it's and it's very funny. easy. It's the best, isn't it? Uh, since I have set up uh, Pi-hole version 5, then one of the things that allows you to do is very easily, using the, the web interface, set up DNS responses for your local network. Really, but just basically custom DNS responses. So, for example, iMac Pro, I have effectively hardwired, if you will, to refer to my 192.168 address for my iMac Pro, which is statically assigned via the Eero. And so what I've done is, instead of connecting using the sidebar and the finder, I've connected to SYN, S-Y-N, which is what I have as like a shortcut to the Synology's static IP address within my network. And so far, after nearly a week, I have not had a problem with doing that. So it appears that something, I guess, with Bonjour or something about using the locations thing in the sidebar is what's hosing this all up. And so if you have any other mechanism by getting to your device, you know, do it by IP address, uh, do it by a fully qualified domain name, whatever the case may be, you might find that that will fix your problem like it did for me. Also, there's a uh, very interesting uh, Hacker News post, which is not something I say often about all this, which I'll <laughs> link in the show notes, um, even though that didn't actually get me to my solution. It was more what John said to me, uh, amongst others. But um, you might want to check it out because apparently this is a longstanding bug and not actually a Catalina thing after all. Yeah, the suggestion that a couple of people had was to do something related to IPv6. Now, I forget what it was. Are they telling you to like disable IPv6? I don't remember. I didn't have to fiddle with it, though. Yeah, the the... The Hacker News thing talks about DNS lookup and like the MDNS stuff. Uh, it's not like regular DNS in that it gets broadcast periodically, but and there's a TTL on the value. But if the TTL expires, say because your computer was asleep, apparently you can't go request it again. You just have to wait for the next broadcast. And during that time, your computer has no idea how to connect to it at all. Makes some amount of sense. But yeah, my suggestion was just to do what I did and cut all of that zero conf bonjour rendezvous stuff out of the loop and just use... IP addresses or names that you statically map to IP addresses. So there you go. Problem solved. 
I think so, actually. I was really surprised because I didn't think I was going to get any useful feedback. Not because our listeners aren't awesome, just because I thought it was some really weird esoteric thing. Turns out, not so much. Uh, speaking of feedback from me to me, or to me from me, I don't know. Anyway, uh, last week I had also kind of off the cuff lamented about my uh, TV turning itself off, and I wasn't 100% accurate on what I had said the problem was. And Hugo Jobling had pointed out to me via Twitter, and I'm glad that you did, that the issue isn't, um, I think I had said it was automations, and that wasn't strictly true. The issue is that it, I think the TV was added to my goodnight scene. I believe I had called it an automation last week, but uh, Hugo had pointed out that when he was adding his OLED TV to to uh, his home, one of the th- one of the screens that I guess I just plowed right through and didn't look at. When if so, that's on me. Uh, one of the sc- one of the screens he has is suggested scenes, and it says select scenes to include this accessory in. You can customize these scenes later in the home app, and sure enough. There's good night where it says turn off. And I don't recall having seen this, but I bet you anything that I just plowed right through it and, you know, next, 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 whatever, 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 and wasn't paying close attention. So it's all my fault. Uh, we'll put a link that Hugo, uh, a link to a picture that Hugo had provided uh, to give you a better view of what I'm talking about. But I thought that was useful feedback to clarify what I was talking about earlier. And actually somebody, a couple of people reached out via Twitter and said, oh yeah, that happened to me and I never understood why. And now I do. So I'm glad I brought it up. Uh, let's see. Daniel Jalcut is telling us about PowerBox. John, what's going on there? Minor corrections from last week. PowerBox is the thing that for security reasons, uh, presents the open and save panel rather than your application doing it. Um, a couple notes uh, from Daniel. One is that PowerBox is now always used for open and save panels. Uh, Gus Mueller says it, it used to be that it was only used for sandbox apps, but in Catalina or maybe Mojave, it was changed to be used for all apps. So that could actually explain some of the slowness because before maybe an app wasn't using PowerBox, but now it was. And the second is Daniel says that he thinks that the the app actually owns the window, but not the content. So your app may actually con- control that window, but you you only get a small region where you're allowed to draw into it. And through XPC, some, the PowerBox draws into the main content of it. Um, and apps are allowed to add their own sort of accessory views. So it's like you own the window and your app gets to draw in some small portion, but PowerBox draws in the other portion. And PowerBox is the thing that actually gives you access to the file and tells you what the result of the thing was. So it's very complicated and it's not surprising that something like that could potentially go go wrong or have some performance difficulties, again, related to security checks and other things that may be slow, especially the first time you try them. So security is complicated. It's a lot easier back in the day when everything was all in one giant memory space and you just open, put up an open save dialog <laughs> box and you could literally not do anything else on the computer until you just dismissed it. <laughs> All right. And then finally, for follow-up, David Darcy writes and uh, in, in shows us some videos about something absolutely fascinating that I had no idea was a thing. If I understand this right, on an Android phone, there's a accessibility mode called Live Caption. And so David sent us a video of the Android phone playing our show and doing speech-to-text captioning live as he's playing it in his podcast app, or at least that's how I understood it. And this looks really freaking cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Like, I mean, it's another type of Android thing. You see much more of this in Android. There's no reason that iOS can't do it, but in general, Apple has shied away from allowing parts of the UI, parts of the system that are not the app you're currently in from overlaying the app that you're in. Obviously, notifications can come down from the top and there's other things that can appear and the status bar can change color. And like there there are obviously ways that the operating system can intrude into the space of an app, but not really to this degree. So this was like 
presumably the operating system, Android, putting a very large overlay on top of the podcast player showing the captions, right? And it, you might be mistaken for thinking like, oh, that's a feature of the podcast app. But my understanding of watching this video is that it's not. It is a feature of the operating system. And anytime audio is playing, you can have this translucent overlay with the uh, things being transcribed in it, which is pretty cool if you've got a very fast on-device uh, speech-to-text engine. That that's a great use of it. Did, was this person, did they also give the video showing the voice control of Android, or was that somebody else? I wish I could remember that tweet. It was like a, that was someone else. Showing how to speak to your Android phone to make it do stuff. Not like you speak to Siri, like, you know, hey, dingus, you know, open thing and whatever, or remind me to do this with that or whatever, but like using it as kind of a <laughs> a verbal pointer. Right, so you could tell it to go to the home screen to open an application, uh, and when it opened that app, like all the controls on the screen would have tiny little numbers and circles next to them. So you would, you would tell it to you know hit button number one, number five, confirm, okay. Like it was kind of like speaking, uh, you know, very much like the the interface that the Mac has. Right, you remember that demo where they showed like the screen was cut into regions and controls had numbers mm-hmm. on them, and you could essentially navigate the the screen with speech. Only this was on a phone. I'm not sure what Apple's interface to that looks like these days because this this interface does require you to see the screen. So it's not for people who can't see the screen well. You, you mean these numbers are very small. So you have to have good vision, but just not the ability to or the, the motor control to use the touch interface. So anyway, I think all this stuff is uh, especially interesting, um, including in, in the context of RSI. I don't know if anyone is getting RSI from their phones, but... Uh, I can assure you that that is actually a thing. Somewhere out there is somebody who's been swiping too much with their thumb, and it feels a little stiff, and they're trying not to think about it, and they should. We did want to take a moment to call out uh, three different organizations that we think are probably worth your uh, investment, interest, time, uh, etc. And just if you happen to have any money that you can throw their way, uh, you know, I think the three of us all believe that these are worthwhile causes and they're worth uh, t- checking out. So we wanted to take just a brief moment and, and highlight three of them. First of all, the Equal Justice Initiative, which is committed to ending, and I'm pulling these mostly from their websites, but but I've heard from various people that these are all pretty great. Uh, the Equal Justice Initiative is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States, to challenging racial and economic injustice, and to protecting basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. Uh, Secondly, the Black Lives Matter organization is a global organization in the U.S., U.K., and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and counteracting acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning, well, not we, but they are winning immediate improvements in our lives. But it'll be we if you donate, which is excellent. And then finally, Black Lives Code is uh, one of the organizations that the, I believe, now defunct um, App Camp for Girls has decided to uh, sponsor or at least uh, elevate and I know the App Camp people, and they're all really great. So Black Girls Code is devoted to showing the world that Black girls can code and do so much more. By reaching out to the community through workshops and after-school programs, Black Girls Code introduces com- computer coding lessons to young girls from underrepresented communities in programming languages such as Scratch or Ruby on Rails. If you happen to have a few extra bucks to uh, throw any of the uh, three organizations that we've just called out, uh, I think that would be really excellent, and certainly the three of us would appreciate it. Uh, but we just wanted to call that out. And yeah, I don't know what our agenda is for talking about these sort of social issues and stuff in the future, but expect that as with last week, we'll talk about it here and there. 
uh, and then we won't, and then we will, and then we won't, and we'll just do what we think is best. Yeah, we had we had some uh, sponsorship openings this week, and we figured, you know, what better thing to do with them than to try to promote some of these great causes. Exactly. Uh, Marco, it's your birthday tomorrow. Are there any birthday <laughs> presents you would like, by chance? <laughs> oh, I, should, I don't know. My, my wife's making me some delicious fruit tarts, and I'm going to have some beer that I like, and I think that, that'll be a good day. That sounds like a good day. Additionally, if you want to get me an extra birthday present after you've already given to the good uh, causes that are way better than this because they need it way more than we do, we are going to launch a membership program as of right now. So if you go to atp.fm slash join, you can join as a member right now. We've been doing this show for seven years so far, something like that, a little over, a little over seven years. And we are not going to stop anytime soon. We all love doing this show and as long as all of you out there keep listening, we want to keep making this show. And the format and style of this show were established really fast. Like within the first few episodes, we pretty much established the format that we've really used almost almost unchanged for seven years. You know, we have the cold open free show. We have the dial up sound, follow up, main topics, ask ATP if we have it that week, ending theme and the after show. Right, it's a very simple formula. We we've been doing it for a very long time, and yet you two still can't follow it, can you? <laughs> <laughs> and part of the formula is not following the formula. <laughs> so, okay, great. And we also very early on established the business model of the show, and it hasn't changed really in the entire seven years. The show is free; it's available everywhere. It's you know, not exclusive to anybody, and it's funded as so many podcasts are by sponsorships. We read an ad read three times per episode, roughly. Uh, each read is about two minutes long, so you get about six minutes of ads in our show that is usually almost two hours long. And I, I think that's one of the best content-to-ads ratios of anything I listen to that, that has ads. And that this all has worked very well and continues to work very well for seven years and will continue you know, well into the future, we hope. And unless the sponsorship change, you know, changes a lot and like if, if people stop buying podcast ads, you know, other than something dramatic, dramatic like that, we have no intention of changing any of these basics for the foreseeable future. And if you all will forgive me for a moment of a total lack of modesty, I think we make a great show. We might make the best tech podcast in the world. You will never hear me say this any other time because <laughs> it's really hard for me to say this without like <laughs> freaking out about the lack of modesty here. But we take a lot of pride in what we do here. We put a lot of work into it and I think we're good at it and I'm damn proud of it. So, Let's get back to the money part for a minute. We already make good money from this show. None of us are hurting financially. The vast majority of that money, though, only comes from one source. It comes from those ads. Now, we did just finish a merchandise sale, which we do a couple times a year. Merchandise is, is kind of a fun side project. It doesn't make that much money to us because it's so expensive to produce physical items and ship them around the world and everything. We make a few bucks off of each thing, but it's more for, you know, kind of fun stuff to give our fans something cool to wear if they want to and, you know, make some side income from the show. But the vast majority of the money comes from those six minutes of ads that you hear in each episode. Our ads usually sell well because we have a really good audience for selling ads. You know, you all out there, we, we have a pretty good idea that like, you're probably mostly a bunch of nerds like us. And we, you know, we can sell you things like hosting companies and domain registration and things like that. And it's, it's not that hard to sell ads to our audience. Right. And that's why you hear so many of the same companies advertising over and over again, because our ads work well for them. And, and it's great for us. We like them too, because they're good companies selling good stuff. And, you know, we can get paid, 
good money, but also sleep at night knowing that we're not like annoying people or ripping you off or making a bad show. But podcast ads are a bit tricky as a business model. They are mostly good, but over time they do take an increasingly higher amount of work to sell and to get paid for as a lot of that ad buying has shifted. It used to be that the companies who bought the ads would come directly to us and deal with us and we would send them an invoice and they would pay it and and whatever. Increasingly, many of the podcast advertisers that you hear on most shows are buying through ad agencies and the ad agencies are also consolidating and getting bigger and getting acquired and everything. And so when you're dealing with ad agencies, it just it adds more work to the process. It adds more cost all around. We can't always sell every slot. We can't always sell the ads at the prices that we want. We often don't get paid for months. And sometimes we don't get paid for a sponsor at all. Like if they go out of business or they go bankrupt or they just don't want to pay anybody any ever again. Like that we do get stiffed on a, on a occasional basis. And the ad market is also volatile. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like the real estate market. You know, real estate are like, oh, it's always going to go up. You know, people always assume the ad market will do well because it usually does until it doesn't. And whenever there's a big, like, <laughs> economic disturbance like there was with the quarantine, everybody cuts back on their ad spending immediately. And it's really hard to sell additional ads. Um, it's also really hard every January or February or August or the fifth week in a five-week month. Like, that's just... <laughs> podcast ads have ups and downs and uh, and you're very much tied to the economy or like these random you know calendar things that, about budgeting so in this quarantine period we've had we it, this was terrible for podcast ad sales some shows were hit worse than others we were hit pretty bad that's why you've heard so many episodes recently that have had only like one or two sponsors including this one um instead of the usual three sponsors that we have now I don't want to paint a picture that we're like dying here. The rest of the summer is looking a lot better for the ad sales. And again, we make good money and we'll be fine no matter what you do. But this was a wake up call to us that we wanted some diversification. You know, we don't want the, this entire show that we love so much to be dependent on the whims of the ad market. When we have this perfectly good audience, you all sitting out there right now, many of whom have told us that you'd be happy to support us directly if such an option became available. So, we are now launching a membership program. We don't expect this to replace the ads anytime soon or probably ever. I honestly, I think we'd be shocked if we got more than a few percent of the audience to sign up for it. And we also don't want to take anything away from what the show has always been for everyone. So we don't want to take any existing part of the show and put it behind a paywall or anything like that. You know, And maybe in the future, if ad sales totally tank and we have to make a bigger push for membership, maybe we'll have to do stuff like that. But that probably won't happen. If you want to support us by becoming a member, we have one plan, which we'll talk to in a minute. It's eight bucks a month. For that, you get your own private RSS feed and you get a sponsor-free version of the show. And you can put that feed in whatever podcast app you want. We made a nice slick integration, heavily inspired by Stratechery and Dithering. Thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> we made a nice, uh, you know, slick, you know, thing that you can just do it like with a couple of clicks of most apps. I went back the last four episodes uh, have sponsor-free versions in those feeds. And then, you know, all future episodes ongoing will have sponsor-free versions. Um, and for now, that's it. Uh, you have the ad-free version of the show, eight bucks a month. And, you know, I got to say, I I subscribe to a few Patreons for ad-free podcasts, and I love it. It's it's a completely unnecessary luxury. You know, as I said, we have six minutes of ads a week, Uh, but it's a luxury. You know, like most luxuries, it's it's kind of nice if you can if you can afford it and if you care about that kind of thing. 
we hope to add more stuff later. Uh, maybe some occasional member exclusive bonus content that wouldn't fit or make sense to be a part of this regular show. Um, and we'd also love to hear your ideas on what else you would like to see as member benefits. But for the most part, what we're selling is supporting us and you get a sponsor free feed of the show. Same show just without the sponsors. So if you want to spend eight bucks a month for that, that's great. Uh, if you don't want to spend eight bucks a month for that, that's totally fine too. Simply by listening to our show and hearing the ads in the regular version, that supports us perfectly well. So we thank you for that. That's enough. If you want to support us differently by becoming a member for eight bucks a month, we'd be very thankful for that. So there it is. Thank you for that. We have a lot more we can talk about actually, but like, you know, the, the implementation of this, some of the, some of the decision-making and why the stack and everything. I think, I think we should dig into that. And uh, we can start by saying that, uh, you know, already seeing suggestions go by in the chat, uh, and as you might imagine, when we discussed this amongst the three of us, we had all sorts of ideas. Like we, we entertained <laughs> almost everything. I'm not sure which ones we want to discuss that we entertain. There's a couple of them we, that might want, you might be amused by, but uh, we're starting intentionally very simple, right? And we don't know how this is going to go, right? You know, there's one price, there's one offering. It's an ad-free show. Like it's straightforward. It's easy to understand. We're not taking anything away from anybody. Nothing is moving behind a paywall. Like if you don't pay, you get exactly the same show you've always gotten. But we entertained all possibilities. And so I think it's important to recognize that we are intentionally starting simple. And we're just going to learn from how it goes. If nobody signs up, then maybe we've made the wrong offering, right? And so we'll we'll figure it out from here. But hopefully we're, we're the, what we're providing is easy to understand, straightforward, and something that at least a few people will be interested in doing. Yeah, I think we should also talk about uh, a little bit of the machinations with regard to cost, because I think that even though I, I, I am very comfortable and proud even of where we've landed, a little sliver of me is disappointed that we didn't decide to go with what we were originally thinking. <laughs> it was really funny. It was, it was really funny, but I think it would have come across obnoxious, which is why we shelved it. But I think it's one of those things where it's a bad joke, but I can't help but telling it anyway. <laughs> and, uh, You're totally that dad who tells the bad joke oh, anyway. I, am. I, I don't am. think it's a bad joke. I think I'm, I was heavily in favor of this plan. Go ahead, Casey. It was your idea. So No, I thought it was Marco's it. idea. Oh. I, it was, it was actually, I think it, was, it might have actually been Tiff's idea. Like Tiff and I, Tiff and I derived it like one night. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. It was Tiff. It was Marco came and told us that Tiff suggested it. There that's yeah. right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but anyways, though... So, uh, Marco and Tiff had come up, or Tiff had come up with the idea of doing RAM plans. So you could do eight bucks a month, sixteen bucks a month, thirty-two bucks a month, or sixty-four bucks a month. Now, of course, what would you be getting for all of those higher-tiered plans? The same exact crap you're getting. <laughs> nothing. The eight month plan. You get nothing. And you know, we like it because it's you know it's a computery like the the pricing you know at powers of two and stuff like that. But practically speaking, a lot of things that are that are like Patreons work like that, where there are tiers, and you get you know if you pay more, you get some separate thing or whatever. And like especially for an initial offering, even though the joke about the RAM things was good, it just seemed like maybe too confusing and just let's just start off simple and see how it goes if if there are people out there who are super angry that they're not able to give us more money per month let us know and we'll consider higher <laughs> tiers right um, I, I don't expect a lot of email on that yeah exactly right <laughs> uh, and my, my the thing is like you should have an other field where people can just type in the amount they want to pay because <laughs> who knows there i've always waiting for that that one reclusive billionaire who listens to the show is like all right all right, ten grand a month. Here you go. Anyway, um, <laughs> I love K Ham in the chat says, "Come on, this is an Apple podcast. We know it's eight thirty two sixty four. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably true. 
we're going to skip over the size that everyone else wanted to do. Yeah. And we have all sorts of ideas of other things that we could give, but in the beginning we don't, you know, we don't want to over overwhelm. All right. So Marco mentioned member specific content. I always said like, eventually someday years down the line, we should eventually get me to play destiny with those two, but I don't know if they're actually going to want to do that. And I, and that's not a podcast either. So I don't even know how that would work, but that's like stretch goal five years in the future, potentially if this is still uh, a thing that we're doing, but um, in the short term, uh, most of the obvious ideas you can think of, we've also been entertaining and may actually arrive, but we don't know what those are going to be now. So this is what we've got to start with. Yeah. And, and like, and we ultimately like, you know, we, we know if you go, you know, apples to apples comparison of like, well, for eight bucks a month, I could get Disney plus or something like, yeah, we know like, <laughs> but it, this is, it's closer to like, if you look at, you know, like Patreons basically are, are the real good comparison here like many podcasts and stuff that we like have patreons they're usually they usually have have tiers at five or ten dollars a month that's and that's like what i usually pay like and like the average of what i pay for the ones i support is usually ten dollars a month <laughs> and and really like you know when we were talking about the multiple tiers we didn't really want to have some kind of like doodads that we give you or kind of vague promises or like dvd extras you know it's like a lot a lot of patreons and kickstarters and everything they think they have to offer stuff to people to get them to pay for the higher tiers but as as a supporter you often just you just want to support them you don't want their stuff you or you don't want you're never gonna like you know get their like free email greeting or you know whatever the whatever the thing is and then meanwhile for the creators those things are massively time consuming and burdensome and often costly to make and so I as a as as a frequent supporter of this kind of stuff, I don't want any of that stuff. Give, let me pay you the five or ten bucks a month for your show and get the ad free feed if you have one, and that's that's great. That's all I want. Like because the whole point is you're paying to support something, not to buy a low priced product, right? And so we wanted to avoid anything like that because not only is it generally not worth it for creators and it wouldn't be worth it for us, but that's not why we want your money. Like it, we don't want you to buy something expecting like you know massive bonus stuff or special access to us or you know stuff like that that's kind of hard for creators to actually really give um we just if you want to pay us for an ad free feed and to, for extra support if you want to that's great if you don't want to that's totally cool again we understand if you just listen to our show and hear the ads you are already supporting us you can even skip them sometimes. Just don't tell anybody. It's fine. We, it's everyone does it. I do it. It's fine. Like we, you are already supporting us by doing that. So if you want to support us more, come be a member. ATP.FM/slash/join. There's some interesting tech details of this. My my favorite one. Before we start talking about like the website and everything, hopefully hopefully everyone in the chat has already signed up, so you already know what the website's like. But um, <laughs> we already have 71 members. Hooray! Yeah, the, the the interesting uh, tech, the most interesting test tech bit here is. To streamline the production of the ad-free feed, uh, Marco, lover of dynamic ad insertion, has made the, <laughs> the reverse of that, which is static ad removal. <laughs> He's, the, the, the forecast tool that he uses to chapterize the shows now has a feature where it can export the ad-free version. I don't know exactly how this works. Marco, you want to explain it? Yeah, sure. So basically, this, this is one of the, <laughs> one of the areas... In which, sorry, this is going to be a Marco-heavy episode. If the haters out there, I'm sorry, you might as well stop now. Um, this is one of the areas where, like, owning the entire stack of production tools and like, like, this is strategically very good for me. Back when I made Forecast, I believe I said on the show like that one of the reasons 
why I wanted to just get it out there for free and not try to charge like, you know, 30 or 50 bucks for it and make nobody buy it is because I it had value to me as somebody in the podcasting space as both a podcaster and the owner of Overcast. It had value to me to have some kind of control over a podcast production tool. Because then if I wanted to add features to podcast at the production side, I had a place to do that. And then I can do things like add corresponding features to Overcast, you know, give MP3s a certain a certain ability, like like the idea of I have my floating chapters where the chapter spec has a provision where you can have a chapter that does not get listed in the list of chapters, but just appears at a certain time range. Nothing actually reads or writes those, but the provision was there in the spec. So I said, hey, I'll implement that. So I implemented it in Forecast and, and in Overcast. So now if you if you have a chapter podcast and you want to display a chapter that merely shows up at a certain time range but is not listed in the table of contents, you can do that, and it works. So, you know, there is value to kind of owning the whole stack here. In this case, first, we built a CMS. This is why, This is one of the big reasons why we built the CMS when we did. Oh, stop. Stop right there. We did not build a CMS. I would love to take credit for this, but two of us complained and moaned about a handful of design decisions, and one of us actually did all the work. Complained? That's important user feedback. Yes. <laughs> I, I would say two of you were design consultants. Fair enough, fair enough. Anyway, so first, I <laughs> built a Thank CMS. Um, we, we were wanting to do it for a while, as we said, you know, things like you know, controlling the RSS feed and you know, what, how, how everything works and everything. We wanted to build it exactly for our needs, in part to support a membership program. The way I built things is for the long term and with as much under my control as possible. So this is things like minimizing external services is a big part of this. When a service is necessary, I like to choose conservative, stable, long-term services, companies that have been there a long time. And I like to choose low-level building blocks instead of like high-level, all-in-one solutions. What I want to do is own as much of the customer interaction and the customer billing relationship as possible. For example, rather than going to Patreon or Memberful, we built a site on Linode, and we host our files on Libsyn, and I built the whole membership payment program on Stripe. You know, building a hosting platform or a podcast CDN and stats service or a payment processor, which is what those three companies are respectively, that's no small feat. It's not worth doing for almost anybody ever. So that made sense to outsource. Those are major problems that, you know, that are really hard to do. I'm not going to become my own credit card processor. Um, but I also don't want to go to somebody like Patreon where like they have this whole big platform and I would simply be like, we'd be like, you know, one tiny member of it and we would be at the whims of whatever they decide to do. And then, you know, every company is, seems good for a while if they're good, but then you don't know what's going to happen in the future down the road. Why, why have a dependency if you don't need it? Right. So we built the CMS as these low level building blocks that you, the customer either will never see or might only notice, like you know, you, you'll see a Stripe logo in the footer of the of the payment page or something. Like, but that, but that's it. Like you, you know, you're not. These aren't like hitting you over the head. Like you're not going to Patreon to sign up for us. You're going to our site, and you're signing up directly on our site. And we control all that. We don't have to worry. Like if we're going to go to some like new podcast subscription membership management service, what if they go out of business next year? Like we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Stripe is not going anywhere. 
Libsyn has been around for like 15, 20 years. Like they're not going anywhere either. Linode is not going anywhere. Like these are solid, long-term, low-level building blocks. And that's the way I like to build things. So that's the CMS part. And there's lots of interesting stuff about the CMS, but <laughs> we'll get to that some other time maybe. I don't know. Um, so as John mentioned, here I, I, I'm setting myself up for every week producing two copies of the show. You know, one with the ads and one without. What the entire rest of the podcast industry does now is called dynamic ad insertion. We've talked about it here and there before. This is one of the reasons why you can occasionally, if you're listening to one of the major shows uh, from a major producer, you will often hear um, like a recent ad in an old show, or you will hear a local ad for some like local car dealership or some event that's happening in your town, uh, which sounds kind of creepy when the first time you hear it. And it's the reason why they're doing dynamic ad insertion, where they, they have their MP3 files of the show, and they mark certain timestamps to insert ads at. And on download... They look at your IP address, they either do a direct geolocation lookup and figure out roughly where you are, or they do something even creepier where they look it up with one of those data broker services and find out exactly who you are, uh, and then they inject ads that are relevant to you directly into the show at your download. As I mentioned earlier, the MP3 file format is really like hackable. You can basically splice MP3s freely, and as long as you do it remotely competently you can you can be really sloppy you can make a lot of mistakes as long as you do it remotely competently it'll work it'll play um and so that's what a lot of big publishers do now like you know they they direct they dynamically insert ads and anyway i actually do kind of the opposite now as john said <laughs> i am statically deleting ads automatically um where forecast the tool that i use to encode the chapter markers and, and the mp3 which i write already had the concept of sponsor chapters, like recognizing sponsor chapters by the prefix. And you can edit what the prefix is. By default, it's what we use on this show, sponsor colon. And so it recognizes those and it highlights them in the table view so you can easily see them. And that way I, I always check to make sure, like, are they actually, you know, do they have the right durations roughly? And then I can make sure they all have links and everything. And so it already had this mechanism of recognizing sponsors. It also had a feature called export air checks where people who buy ads a lot of times they will they will want to hear the a copy of whatever ad you read before they pay you they like give us an air check which is just a fancy industry term for the copy of the ad as you read it from the show and so i have an, a feature in forecast i never want to do this so i have a feature in forecast that says export sponsor air checks and any any chapter that looks that that, that has the sponsor prefix that you've set it will just export those as separate files that include only that plus or minus or plus like you know a couple seconds on either side, um, etc. So I already had MP3 splicing, sponsor recognition, um, chapter markers, and I'm already making the show with chapters. So I built in a feature into Forecast to automate the creation of the sponsor-free versions by simply having a menu item that will export a copy of the same file without the sponsor chapters in it. And as you hear the show, the, the way the sponsor-free version sounds, it's exactly the same show. The way it sounds is when you hear, and then you hear the sponsor here, and then you hear the sponsor close music. Basically, the way the ad-free version works is you only hear the ad close music, and then it goes to the next topic. So you don't hear the ad open or the ad. You hear just, you know, previous topic, and then the next topic. To do this in Forecast, I had to first figure out macOS app notarization because the last Forecast update <laughs> predates Catalina. 
I also then had to add support for dark mode because the last update also predated Mojave. It was in 2018. Oh, wow. Um, but the main reason I had to update the forecast app besides adding this feature was I had to improve the precision of the chapter markers because it turned out that the way I was forecast, what forecast does to achieve its amazing speed and make your fan spin so fast is it splits up the file into however many cores you have. So on my iMac, I have 10 cores. It's 20 virtual hyperthreading cores. So it splits the file into 20 parts, encodes each of those parts separately in parallel, and then glues them all together at the end. It turned out the way I was gluing things together was actually adding one silent frame of audio, which is like something like 11 milliseconds. Uh, it was adding a little bit of audio at every joint that was silent. And it split them on silences. So you wouldn't ever notice like the it, it 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 wouldn't like split in the middle of a word, so it wouldn't be inserting silence anywhere you would notice. But it was enough that the chapter markers would be very slightly off as they were later in an episode if you were encoding with a high core count machine, because you would have all these segments that were joined, and so a chapter marker might be off by a half a second. And the problem is when I'm placing these so precisely to make sure that the audio flows correctly when it performs the sponsor removal splice and it doesn't have a weirdly long gap or it doesn't like cut off half a word somewhere. A half a second of imprecision is too much. So first, and this, this is all to save me a small amount of work every week. (laughs) First, I had to improve the MP3 joining algorithm in forecast you know, when I when I made when I first wrote it like four or five years ago, I, I had less knowledge of the MP3 file format than I have now. So I was able to do that just by knowing, like, oh, that's right, it's this it's this padding frame that the lame lib is adding, you know, whatever. So I knew enough to do it, you know, correctly this time. So first I had to like figure out the notarization, add dark mode, update lame, then improve the precision of chapter markers by rewriting the way I join things. <laughs> My goodness. But all of that I was able to do it because I control my production tool, you know, like it, it, it's a very, it's a very powerful thing like to, to have that. And you know, it's, it's just like a slow build. Like this is, this is how I like to do things in my entire career if possible. Like you put in a lot of work up front to do ridiculous things that save time over time. This is one of the great things about being a programmer. Like you can, if you have some annoying task that you have to do every day or every week or even once a year, you can write a script and you can spend three hours writing the script that'll, that's going to save you one minute a day, but that's satisfying. And eventually that might be worth it. <laughs> but now I have ad free versions. As, as I said, I only did the last four episodes uh, ad free. I didn't go back like any further than that. Uh, and then there's also issues with overcast that were kind of led to this. Um, I, I developed a ping API to, uh, to kind of make the private feed, uh, update speed be as fast as the public feed because you know what you wouldn't want is if you have a premium feed where everybody has their own little feeds uh, you know like a premium offering you don't want the public show to go out and then and have that be picked up by all the apps really fast because it's a popular feed and then have to wait like two or three hours for all the member feeds to pick up the same episode like that that would be not good you know you you don't want your members to have a worse experience than your non-members right you want it to be equal or better so I developed an API in Overcast where every time we publish a new episode, and this is a public API, it's on the podcaster info page, the ping API, the Overcast now has an API where you can say, all right, the feeds that begin with this prefix just got updated, so go crawl them now instead of waiting you know, possibly up to an hour or whatever that you might otherwise crawl them. So again, like we produce a show here. 
I control the production tool. I control our biggest client. It's a good place to be. I know not everybody can do this, but when you do this, when you have this kind of stuff, it's amazingly strategically valuable. And you can push things forward. You know, you, you can you can make new features or, or make things better for everybody just based on your own needs because you know what your needs are because you're also a podcaster. And it's important to remember when Mark was talking about all these things about how he has his production tools and the app and the CMS and blah, blah, blah. This is still using all just open standards. MP3 is an open standard that Marco did not invent. Chapters are a part of the standard that Marco did not invent. Anybody can make tools that understand these. Our, our private and public feeds are just plain old RSS feeds that any podcast pl- client can play. Like We're all within this open ecosystem. It's just that because it's open, anybody can make apps that deal with them, which means that Marco can make apps that deal with them, and so he has. And same thing with our website. It's you know, using PHP. It's on the web. It's a plain old website using open standards. Uh, it's just nice to be able to uh, control as much of that as possible and as feasible. Um, related to that, uh, since we control it, we wanted to make it a good, simple experience. Hopefully the people in the chat room who are our super fans have figured out the website and have not stumbled over anything, but we spent a surprising amount of time trying to figure out how to make it, make the experience obvious and simple enough. There's just like one or two screens. Like it's not complicated. It's, you know, you just go there, enter some stuff, click some buttons and you're done. It's very simple. And that's what we wanted it to be. Um, but one of the simplifications that I had my heart set on the beginning uh, that turns out we couldn't do was sign in with Apple. The thing that we talked about on the show, I'm a big uh, fan of this service. It's like, oh, if you, if you already trust Apple and if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you do already. Uh, you can instead of signing in with an email address or something, you can do signing with Apple and we wouldn't even know what your email address was if you didn't want us to. We, you'd just be completely anonymous as far as we're concerned. You wouldn't have to maintain any kind of separate login credentials. It would just be like your Apple ID that you already have. And that would be an option for people who wanted to use sign in with Apple. Unfortunately, sign in with Apple strongly suggests that you have an application associated with like an iOS application or whatever. And you can kind of make like a dummy application just to satisfy its desires. But we don't have an app. We have a website. We d- there is no like ATP app. Right. You know, there is you know, I didn't we didn't want to make one. So unfortunately, the reason we don't have sign with Apple is right now it's not really designed to be just a way for people to log into a website that has no associated app whatsoever. Uh, we do support Apple Pay through Stripe. So the payment process is really easy. If you have Apple Pay and you want to use that and you don't have to enter credit card number, you can be done in like less than 30 seconds. Um, but for now, no sign in with Apple. I mean, yeah, like as John said, if we could just get away with not having your email address at all, that would be wonderful. I, you know, I would jump at that. You know, I, I mean, and believe me, I thought of various ways I could try to get away with not not having an email address for anybody. Um, but the problem is, like, when you're taking people's money directly, you need to have some way of accounting for them so that, like, you can. So if they have a problem, they can email you and say, "Hey, I have a problem." here's my email address. Can you look up my account? You know, otherwise like it it just makes, it makes stuff a lot harder if you don't have that. And our payment processor Stripe collects the email address anyway. So like we already are in possession of it anyway through, you know, indirectly, like we have access to it. It's, it's in our data from Stripe. So at that point it's like, well, we already, we're already exposed to it. You know, in in like, if you think about like personal information, as like a, almost like a virus like you know it's like well if it passes near your hands like it's it's on you so you you have to take the precautions <laughs> to protect it and you know you have to have a privacy policy about it and everything it's like once you have to do all that stuff anyway you might as well also provide a decent login experience and and be able to fix people's uh, issues when they email you one of the problems that that, that we had when we, were, when we were thinking about should we add sign in with apple before we realized that you know you kind of that you you really are encouraged that it really needs an app 
And you know, when Apple strongly encourages something, it basically is is a rule, not a, not a suggestion. <laughs> but uh, but you know, and if it isn't a rule now, it will become one later. So you might as well treat it like a rule now. Uh, but uh, one of the, one of the problems with signing with Apple is like if you have signed in with Apple, many people will use it the first time they sign up, or they will not use it the first time they sign up, and then when they come back to your site a few months later, I want to log in, they will try the other thing. If they, you know, if they used it the first time, they will try not using it the second time because they'll forget whether they used it the first time or not. And then they will either not have, not see their account and email you saying my account's missing, or they will miss, they will inadvertently create a new blank account. And then they'll write to you saying all my stuff's gone in my account. So you create all sorts of like customer friction and customer support problems whenever you have multiple ways to log into your service or app so ideally if you could make it just one way you totally eliminate how did i sign up for this you know and and you still have issues of people with multiple email addresses deciding which one they want to use but at least you reduce the you know you reduce the number of problems and problem sources you have by one big one by just saying like okay you don't have to worry about whether you log into our site with Twitter or Facebook or Apple ID or anything. You just log in, you log into you log into our site with an email address. Period. So there it is. I don't you don't even have a password. I, I use one of my passwordless login systems. <laughs> and uh, well, so we put a lot of work into the um, subscribe flow. Again, special thanks to the uh, Stratechery and uh, Dithering podcast, Ben Thompson and John Gruber. Uh, the the system that Ben Thompson has devised over there for quick subscribing with like the cool QR code and everything. We ripped it off completely 100% with permission, uh, but totally ripped it off, totally shamelessly. Uh, so thanks to them <laughs> for, for innovating <laughs> so that the rest of us can, uh, can reap the benefits. One final uh, nicety that Marco added, uh, and he can correct me if I'm wrong about understanding this, but if you sign up as a member and you get your special member feed and you add it to your podcast player of choice using our cool little uh, page that lets you do that, um, and then you unsubscribe, you stop being a member, uh, you don't have to change your feed. Is that correct, Marco? Like that feed That's will correct. continue to work, continue to work for you. And then if you sign, it will just become the non-member feed, right? So suddenly, you know, like you won't have to like delete the feed from your podcast player, then resubscribe to the public feed, and then delete the public feed. Like you can just keep that feed there forever, and the content of it will change based on whether you are currently an active member or not. Yeah, and it'll tell you like it'll it'll prefix the title with subscription expired. So like it'll be very clear that it is an expired member subscription, but the content will still be coming in and there'll be a link in each post for you to renew if you want to. Your member feed, as long as you don't delete your account, your member feed will continue to work just fine as as a copy of the public feed. And then as soon as you want to resubscribe in the future, member stuff all shows up again. Yeah, and you can, of course, delete the feed and resubscribe to the public one too. We're just saying this is a nicety so you don't, you don't end up with this weird dead feed that doesn't work anymore. One thing that may not be clear, or at least wasn't clear to me, about your membership that you're paying for, it's not calendar month. So if you become a member now, you're not like missing out on like the, the first couple of shows in June. It's based on your sign-up date, right? Yeah, it's, it's simply, you know, time range from now. You're buying, you know, a month from now, and, so, and it renews next month. And you can see it's, I got, man, Stripe is so good these days. I mean, so I've, I've built, I've used Stripe a couple times over the years. It's always been great. It, it, it's always been like great company, super amazing API, extremely easy to use, like breath of fresh air compared to the old days of PayPal. But now it's even better. Like if you can believe, like if you are building anything with payments, I strongly encourage you to use Stripe because <laughs> it's so good. Stripe, not a sponsor of this episode. Yeah. 
you'd be amazed how much functionality we got from them for almost no effort at all. Like the Stripe integration took me two days for the entire payment system. That is subscribing, including Apple Pay, including support for um, the, the cards that use 3D Secure that need like, you know, send, me, send you a text message to verify the charge before it actually goes through. Like all that stuff is supported and a whole billing portal where you can go in and like change your credit card number if it's about to expire. It'll email you a week ahead of time of expiration and stuff like that. Um, you can see your billing history, all of that. And it took me two days to build the entire integration. Again, Stripe has always been good, but it's even better now. So if, if, you, if you're building something, something that requires credit cards, or if you're thinking about it, it, you'd be shocked how easy it is. So yeah, thank you to Stripe for being awesome. There were a lot of design decisions and things that went into this, and I don't think we need to belabor it anymore right now, but we might visit it in the future, or as we make other choices, we might revisit those in the future. But uh, I do want to thank Marco one more time for putting in the overwhelming amount of work on doing this. And if you want to get Marco a birthday present, um, you can donate to the three uh, organizations we've already talked about, and or you can join uh, and. the ATP membership program. And and would be better. Yeah. And would be better. Let's do and. I'd rather, if you're going to only give eight bucks a month to somebody, don't give it to me. Give it to one of them. All right. We have one big topic we need to talk about, which is going to make me friggin' miserable. Uh, Bloomberg says that the ARM transition is happening in, what, a week and a half, two weeks, something like that? Uh, it's happening at WWDC, or at least it will be announced anyway at WWDC. And this uh, would only be depressing if you had a brand new laptop arriving tomorrow. Which I definitely don't. <laughs> definitely not. I'm kind of amazed at how much mileage that Bloomberg has gotten slash German have gotten out of essentially the same story. Like, I think we've had basically this same story as a topic on this podcast. Not just our Max, but I'm saying this specific story with these facts <laughs> in this publication on this show like three times, right? So kudos for, you know... Getting the page views. I don't think there's much new information, except they're becoming more and more insistent that no, really, WWDC, which is in a couple of weeks as we record this, this is going to be the coming out party for ARM on the Mac. Um, they don't, you know, and with the typical hedging, they always say as early as, yeah, well, it could happen as early as any point in the future. That's kind of, you know, anyway. Um, so they're, they're hedging and they're like, oh, there's not going to be hardware available. But you, of course, you have to announce the transition before you have the hardware for most cases, because if you just released ARM Macs, nothing would run on them. And, you know, uh, all this leads us to discuss all the same questions. Now, the fact that they why are we talking about it for a third time then if it's like there's not really any new facts and it's just, you know, being more insistent on the dates that they've said many months ago. I think as they become more insistent and as the date comes closer. I start to believe more because it's like, well, if they're still insisting and it's getting closer to the day. We all know kind of like, you know, the leaks get more, more solid, the closer you get to the date of when they're supposed to happen. And practically speaking, if the, the long-term rumors of like our max in 2021 are true, you kind of have to tell people about it before you try to sell them a bunch of hardware that doesn't run any apps. Right. So WWC is the time you would tell them. And you probably don't want to wait until WWDC twenty twenty one if you're planning on having any selling consumers max in twenty twenty one. That's too late. So unless like so many other things uh in this world that have been, you know, delayed by coronavirus, if that if coronavirus hasn't thrown a giant monkey wrench into their plans, I'm starting to believe that this upcoming WWDC is gonna be the you know, 
the move away from x86 move away from intel i don't even know how to phrase it but you keep saying arm max but as we've discussed in many past shows oh it could be anything could be any kind of apple processor it could be risk five could be amd it could be uh, anyway arm max pretty sure we're pretty sure that's what's coming that's that's what bloomberg says and uh, wwc could be the date yeah i'm very much looking forward to this i mean we've we've been talking about it for years now as the thing that we assumed was probably going to happen someday and it has kind of felt over the last year or so like it seems like it's getting close if it finally is happening i'm so excited and and even though you know again we we've, we've talked about this so many times uh, there will be losses along the way but i think we've already hit most of them you know there's it's not a coincidence that mac os in the last couple of years has dropped support outright or deprecated major functionality that is considered like old or legacy that you think might be hard to support in an ARM transition. So things like 32-bit support, um, OpenGL, you know, like like the major things that have cost us a lot of apps, especially, you know, 32-bit has has caused a lot of apps to to be killed, basically. You know, a lot of the old old APIs that were 32-bit only, you know, those aren't coming over. Why do you think Apple's been doing all this house cleaning on Mac OS? It's not just for fun. Like It's clearly in preparation for this transition. So... It does seem, it seemed for a while that it's imminent. That seems more likely than ever now, and, and especially when backed up with this pretty uh, firm report. I'm very excited to see this. I cannot wait. I do think we are probably going to lose boot camp. Uh, any kind of x86 emulation, I think, is out the window. Uh, and a lot of PC hardware compatibility is probably going to be lost as well. But I think that will be worth it in the end. I'm trying to remember what was the presentation where uh was the most recent wwc there was some recent apple presentation where i remember talking on on the show about how the whole presentation was like it was like a giant subtweet i remember i remember saying that like the the, the presentation was basically screaming we are making our max like it was <laughs> yeah. the presentation was like that's exactly what i said in the past episode of atp i can't remember the episode number but like the presentation was here at apple we have a bunch of new products and this one has an A whatever processor in it. And let me tell you how great those A whatever processors are. And it's got this and it's got that. And they just went into how great they are making these system on a chips. That, you know, it was obviously an iOS device or whatever. They were so into it and they were just telling you about all this cool stuff. And either just before or just after that, they had talked about a Mac product. And it said almost nothing about the CPUs because A, we knew that they were not remarkable. And B, like everything that they... Everything they were saying about the A series, you knew if you knew the tech stuff is like not true of the Intel CPU and the other thing. <laughs> it's not super power efficient. It's not made on a new process size. It doesn't have a neural engine. Its GPU isn't way better. It doesn't have more cores. It doesn't it has none of that stuff. And of course, Apple's not going to say this in the presentation. It costs Apple hundreds of dollars to Intel, whereas this one costs them, you know, less than a hundred dollars or whatever. Like the whole presentation was the subtext was. We make Apple makes great CPUs. Our CPUs are great in ways that Intel CPUs are not, but they didn't say that. That wasn't the time for that presentation. <laughs> so when I saw that presentation, I'm like, oh, it's on now. Like it's clear that they are just that there's no turning back now. They like this is the tech strategy. Everybody knows it, and their presentations have been leading up to it. So when they do come on stage and present this, this this is the the thing that I'm thinking about as we come closer to WWC. How do they position this, right? We we talked about this when we were talking about it years ago. It's like, oh, do they just use ARM for the low end laptops? Uh, do they keep the big ones x86? Do they try to make a 64 core processor for a new ARM based Mac Pro? This is back when we didn't even know they were going to make a Mac Pro. Um, like 
what how do they deal with the software situation like how how do they present this and now that we get closer to the date the sort of default strategy that everyone believes becomes much more uh, there's much more support for it like that presentation they gave was not a presentation preparing the way for apple to say we're pursuing a dual cpu strategy where we're gonna have you know forever intel cpus and arm max at the same time no that presentation was all about how apple makes amazing cpus nobody makes better ones isn't apple awesome don't you wish these were in all of your devices so i think right now a couple weeks out from wwc if they do this the positioning is the same as it was for intel and the same as it was for power c which is basically these new a whatever you know these new apple made cpus are better in all the ways that we care about than the cpus we currently use they're faster they use less power they have more features they're not going to say this but they're cheaper like and the the pitches and eventually all macs will be used this because it's better just like they said with PowerPC and just like they said with intel in fact with intel if people were around for that transition the specific pitch they made which may sound weird in today's world of smartphones and ipads but the specific pitch they made was that PowerPC was just too power hungry haha like, they couldn't put a G5 into a laptop. They weren't power efficient. And Intel's roadmap had CPUs that had much better performance per watt. It wasn't just like, oh, Intel CPUs are faster. They were at that point. They were definitely were faster. But the pitch was, these are faster and use less power, so we can put them in our laptops. And, you know, like, Apple's thing is, like, there are ideas for computers that we have that we can't make with available PowerPC CPUs. With, and the roadmap doesn't have anything to help us, like, say, a laptop. If you can't, if your laptops are still G4, but the, your big desktops are G5, and the G5 is faster and better than the G4, and there's no prospect of getting a G5 into a laptop, that's a pretty dire situation. Now, obviously, it's not that dire now, but all this is to say is the pitch was, this is the future, of the Mac. And yes, there'll be a transition and it will take a while. And here's how we're going to handle the transition. And don't feel bad about the Macs that you already have. Like all the stuff that people are worried about, like, oh, you're going to announce an Intel transition, but then you're going to be selling people PowerPC Macs. What if someone bought a PowerPC Mac the day before that presentation? That happened. That's a thing that happened. We all (laughs) survived it. It's a bumpy transition. Your Intel Mac will be fine for probably the lifetime of that computer because these transitions take time. But in the end, I feel like this has to be positioned as the future of the Mac is whatever this thing is that Apple wants to move to, whatever they call these things. If they're A-series, M-series, you know, whatever they are, that's going to be for every Mac. It may take them longer. to Maybe it's two or three years until they get a Apple-made CPU that is appropriate to replace the one in the Mac Pro or something. But I think that that has to be the pitch is we make great CPUs, we're bringing them to the Mac. Even if they say... Uh, you know, our first line of Macs will just be the laptops. I will be shocked if they make any commitment to, like, in perpetuity continue to make Intel-based Macs because that's just not the way Apple does things. And honestly, it doesn't really make any sense because I think, you know, this is one, the one thing we've discussed in the program over and over again. I think Apple has proven the capability to make an appropriate CPU for every Mac that they sell, including the Mac Pro. They haven't actually done that yet, as far as we know, maybe there's something in a secret lab or something. But I think they've proven they're able to. Because the only difference in terms of, you know, the, the chips that like in an iPad and in the Mac Pro is basically the number of cores. The individual cores are now competitive. Everything else is just a matter of money and time. You know, bus, uh, bus width, memory support, I.O., 
you know, PCI express lanes. These are all solvable problems. Even the, the minor barriers that existed before that I used to insist could be solved by money. Those have come down without the application of huge amounts of money. Thunderbolt is now an open standard and you can be certified as Thunderbolt compatible, even if you're not made by Intel, like all, you know, and Marco, Marco mentioned the 32, 64 bit stuff has resolved itself. Like everything is all set up. Everything's all lined up for Apple to do this. It's easier now than it has ever been in the past. And I feel like the positioning simply has to be, this is the future of the Mac. I'm so excited and disappointed about WWDC this year because it was it was a unique pleasure being around you when Swift was announced and when you know I, it wasn't there. It wasn't the Mac Pro announced uh, when we were in the keynote audience. Sure was. You weren't next to me for Swift, but Mac Pro you were both both times. Both Mac Pros. <laughs> Well, there you go. Exactly. Um, anyways, the point is being in the room for that, like obviously the reality distortion field is different and has been since what, 2011, but it's still amazing to be in the room when this is happening. And if this really is going to be announced in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be real sad not to be there. I mean, obviously I may not have been there anyway, cause I might not have gotten a ticket, but it, it would have been really cool to been able to see it in person. And I'm really curious how they're going to handle the cheering and the hooping and the hollering over something that arguably really should be cheered and we should be hooping and hollering over. Uh, I'm curious to see how they handle that if they're just doing recorded videos. Uh, I'm also curious to see what I think about this computer that's arriving tomorrow, which I actually am super stoked yeah. for. I was um, thinking of you when I said, what if I just bought <laughs> a Mac with the previous CPU? Like, it'll be fine. Like, I, I saw you fretting about that. What about yourself? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I, the other I, be, thing. before I ordered my Mac Pro, I had made, you know, insisted many times. I understand that Apple may have about to be switched to ARM and I'm going to buy like the last great Intel thing. And honestly, it's not even that great in terms of single core performance. The iPads are probably faster, right? I'm I'm resigned to it slash fine with it. I am people are asking how do you feel about that? I'm excited for our Macs. I'm not depressed about my Mac Pro. I love my Mac Pro. It's great, right? Uh, and I'll be fine with it. Maybe it won't last me ten years, right? Maybe I'll replace it with another. You know, I had I bought multiple cheese graters before. I can buy multiple <laughs> mega graters again, maybe someday. Uh, but anyway, I will. You know, I'll I'll survive. It'll be perfectly fine. I'm excited for ARM Macs, even if it's just laptops, which I don't even like in the beginning, because having lived through two CPU transitions before, every one of them has been exciting. PowerPC was super exciting for, I mean, PowerPC itself was exciting for lots of reasons. There was lots of political reasons and other things that we can get into in old man mode and in different shows maybe. But like <laughs> the main thing was that it was faster. It was so much faster than the, you know, ridiculously faster, demonstrably faster and who's not excited by that, right? And even this is even, you know, back in the 90s or whatever when computers were getting faster all the time anyway. Even even in that environment, the switch to PowerPC showed a lot of speed. Even in, in an operating system that was still largely emulated because huge swaths of Mac OS were still 68K code for the longest time. And then the Intel transition, again, Apple was in a bad place. They couldn't put a G5 in a laptop. The Intel Macs right out of the gate, you use them, you're like, oh. I, I remember, like, you know, of course, compiling Perl. On Intel Mac, I'm like, holy cow. You would. This compiles so much faster than it does on my, like, dual G5 Power Mac, right? It was, you know, it's like, it was the next day. It's like, oh, you got, you have a dual G5 Power Mac? Try this middle-of-the-road wimpy Intel Mac. I'm like, well, you know, this giant cheese grater surely will compile. No, the Intel one was so much faster. 
I hope we have that same excitement. If it's maybe it's not raw speed, maybe it's just like, oh, the battery on the laptops lasts like iPad length, like 10 hours long. And before I was only getting four hours, I don't know. But like, I'm hoping that these Macs will be compelling. And for, for anyone who has never gone through one of these architecture transitions, they're scary and they could be bumpy. But my main memory of the previous two transitions is excitement as a, as a, as a tech nerd. It's an exciting time to be involved in the Mac. You would think it would be a scary time to be like, oh, I'm just going to leave the Mac and come back when things settle down. But to me, it's always been exciting. I think they're probably going to start out with the MacBook Air. Like it's the, it's the best selling Mac by all accounts. And it is very mainstream and very good. But the one problem it has is it's kind of slow. And it, I've also heard that the thermal, the thermal uh, system is not super awesome. That like it's kind of like you know not a, not a very graceful or high capacity thermal system, um, and so like you know if you can make if you can take that computer, keep what everyone loves about it, and give it significantly better performance and probably better battery life, that's a great update. That's all it needs to be. And many of the buyers of the MacBook Air don't need a lot of the higher end pro use cases where the transition might be a little bit bumpier, you know. And th- this is why I think that. I've seen the idea floated that uh, that possibly the high-end products would stay Intel for a, maybe a little while longer or a significantly longer time, and that maybe ARM is potentially only in the laptops for a while, or maybe like laptops and the Mac Mini, or you know something like that. Like maybe ARM doesn't come to the MacBook Pro or the iMac Pro or the Mac Pro quite yet you know maybe it waits another couple years before that in the meantime you have arm where it really has like where it matters most which would be you know the smaller battery powered things like you know the macbook air Um, and that would be fine and that would also give people who rely on high-end apps high-end hardware um you know kind of more specialized stuff like virtualization that not everybody really needs to do but some people really need to do it um it, it would give all that time to transition and and for those people to either find a different platform or or, um, or for those for tool makers to fill that in like to make x86 virtualization or rather emulation i guess it would be um on our max stuff like that there's there's so many paths they could take here and I, what, what, what's really interesting what i what i can't wait to see is what some of these decisions end up being like you know what they decide about things like you know boot camp or emulation things like that and then I want to see the first ARM Mac. I re- I'm so curious. If it is something like the MacBook Air or even a, a return of a 12-inch MacBook, but ultimately I think it would probably just be the MacBook Air, that would be an amazing computer. I would probably buy one. It would be so good. I, I can't wait. I really can't wait. The thing that scares me a little bit about the potential for the laptops getting these processors first, which I think makes the most sense from what we know today, I'm worried, and this is actually applicable as well to something we haven't mentioned, which is a potential iMac refresh. Uh, I'm worried that maybe the processors will be new and, well, obviously they will be, and and maybe some other, uh, you know, things around that will be new. Like, let's just say like a, a version two of the Magic Keyboard or whatever it is they're calling the keyboards these days. Like, all that is fine and dandy, but I'm really worried that there's going to be some new hotness looking, like like aesthetic quality to it. And I don't know what that would be, to be honest, except on the IMAX where obviously like smaller bezels and so on. But but I'm scared that I'm going to get this laptop tomorrow, which I am genuinely very excited about. I, I'm really, really stoked to have something that will perform a lot better than my adorable, even though I love it. It's not fast. 
And I'm really excited for it. And I think, John, you're right when you said earlier that it is, it's going to last. Like, the entire lifetime of that laptop, I don't think it's been cut short by a potential ARM release. What scares me, it, and it doesn't even scare me if, like, this potential ARM laptop has twice the battery life of my forthcoming 13-inch MacBook Pro. Like, I don't operate away from a charger that often, so I'm not worried about the, that either. But if it looks cool... which is so stupid i'll be the first to tell you it's so dumb but if it looks super cool like can you imagine if they brought back like maybe not the polycarbonate but like the black macbook do you remember how friggin cool those things looked oh something along those lines (laughs) i mean they look they look cool they look great in 2006 when they came out i don't think they looked out like i think that was that was a time period Uh, sure sure sure. they're not going to bring back plastic i I don't think i don't see that happening i don't think you have to worry about it looking that cool though honestly like, I mean, not not to slam Apple's current laptop design, <laughs> but for two reasons. One, like most of Apple's devices have had their skins pulled in to such a degree that there's there's nothing left to trim. Uh, and all you've got is surface finishes of color. So I suppose they could make a black one, but they probably won't. And the second reason is during both of the previous transitions, Apple's MO, whether intentionally or just because of momentum, has been to sell you computers that look just like their predecessors but their insides have a different cpu right and it makes some it makes sense from a design point it's like well what if your cpu transition doesn't exactly coincide with a complete redesign of all your computers you can't really do that so let's just take this case that previously came with the power pc and put an intel chip in it um and the second part of that that could be intentional is like we want people to understand this is just a mac they're not weird they're not different this computer you bought last week and this computer you bought this week they look exactly the same one has an intel cpu one has a PowerPC CPU, right? That could also be an intentional strategy. But I think you know, the other one is more compelling. Practically speaking, Apple is not capable of physically redesigning its entire line of computers or even a, a specific one. Like they just, they've just refreshed most of their computers, right? Which I, which I think leads into this other rumor. This is related to WWC that uh, the rumor about the iMac being replaced with a new design. And what they mean by new design here is like you were saying, Casey, like the case essentially, like, the current iMac design has been around for many years. Everyone thinks, oh, you could get one with a, with a smaller chin, smaller bezels. Maybe it could look like the Pro Display XDR. People have all sorts of ideas. But the bottom line is it, the iMac is probably due for a physical redesign. And this is this rumor is not that this would be like the ARM iMac because ARM Macs are, you know, there's no rumor that says ARM Macs are coming this year. All the rumors say ARM Macs would be coming next year at the earliest, but you have to tell developers about it ahead of time. And this is a developer conference, so people expect them to be announced to give developers time to rebuild their apps, yada, yada, right? But the iMac rumor is, oh, and they'll introduce a new iMac. So what this would mean, and this may also blow people's minds who haven't been through the previous two transitions, is they would announce an ARM transition and in the same presentation, say, look at this amazing new Intel-based iMac? Yeah, because they're not going to stop selling Macs even once they announce the transition. Like, they didn't when they announced the Intel transition, it's not like, no more Macs will be sold until the first Intel-based <laughs> Mac is released. And same thing with PowerPC and 68. That's just not the way the world works, right? So it is not inconceivable that they could introduce a new iMac, probably do that at the first part of the presentation, and say, here's a great new iMac. Here are its specs. Here's its price. Doesn't it look cool? Ooh and ah. And then later say, and now an important transition for the Mac. We've done this twice before and put in the slot. You know, like, you know how this is going to go, right? And I don't think people will be like, but wait a second. You just introduced an Intel Mac. It's like, yeah. And we're going to be selling them in our stores for the next year. And people are going to buy them and they're going to use them and they're going to work because they're Macs. It's all fine, right? 
But that being the case, it's not like they're saying, okay, well, the first ARM-based Mac, whatever it may be, it has to look radically different to give Casey FOMO. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> right? I think they're just going to look, whatever Mac it is, especially if it's like the MacBook Air that was just physically redesigned, it's going to look like that. Like, that's that's it. I mean, the best they could do is maybe give it a, a new color is available or something like that, but their colors haven't been that daring lately either. So I do not expect the ARM transition to coincide with amazing style change. That said, I welcome an amazing daring style change to any of <laughs> Apple's Macintosh lines, the laptops, desktops, anything. Um, not that I don't like the current style. I do. I really like how my Mac Pro looks. I like how I think they're all attractive computers and they're fine. But I'm always willing to have things mixed up. Uh, I'm frequently jealous of, you know, the the surface finishes that the phones get from year to year. Different colors, you know, shiny, matte, the glass covering, the pastel things, the product red ones, the whatever, that jet black one. Like, there's an adventurous spirit in the phone line that is not present in the Mac line. And I certainly welcome that, but I'm just not expecting it. By the way, uh, semi-real-time follow-up. I am pretty sure, and I think it was my name in, is T in the chat uh, that pointed this out, uh, it was the Brooklyn Academy of Music event that Marco and I were actually present for physically, that that they were going on and on about how amazing the processor is and the then-brand-new iPad Pro, and then they started talking about the then-brand-new MacBook Air, and, yeah, it's great because of all these things, and there's a processor in it. It also has a processor in it. Exactly, (laughs) and so i'm pretty sure marco and i were there for that it was brutal yep yeah um one one final bit on the rmx uh a lot of people have been speculating about the hardware that developers would use to work on their apps so i kept saying like you have to tell developers so they can rebuild their apps but you're not going to sell macs based on the new processor until the next year so what the heck are developers going to test on well uh, when they did the intel transition they had this thing called the what the developer transition kit or something where they would sell you a mac that was basically an existing cheese grater mac you know power mac but inside i believe it was a pentium 4 correct it was like a pc motherboard with a pentium 4 and they weren't selling it to you you were essentially renting it but you had to give it back to apple at the end and anyway developers could get this they gave apple whatever it was a thousand dollars or something and you got a cheese grater with a pentium 4 in it and you would use that to port your app you know, it was an Intel-based Mac. It ran Mac OS X, and you would open up Xcode and bring your source code into it and try to get it to build and test it and everything like that. And then after the period uh, was up, you sent that back to Apple, and then what did they do? They gave you they, they said they gave you uh, the, the actual production Intel iMac uh, as an option or something. You could choose to either get your money back or they would send you an Intel iMac. I forget. But the point is Apple has various ways to get hardware to developers so they can do their development. But that hardware they give to the developers isn't like a secretly ready ahead of time Mac on the new architecture. It's like this weird mongrel beast. It's like dev kits for consoles, <laughs> right? They don't, they're not production systems. These are not consumer systems. Like Apple never shipped a Mac with a Pentium 4 in it, except for these developer transition kits. They were all like the core, you know, the core architecture or whatever. But the Pentium 4 ones were good enough for people to do their porting work because it's the same instruction set or whatever. So... Everyone's, everyone's thinking, what are they going to do this time? What kind of thing are they going to give developers so they can actually build their app, Mac app on ARM or whatever these, you know, whatever these CPUs are going to be? And since the rumor is that these are going to be ARM Macs, everyone says, well, they don't have to worry about that because developers probably already have tons of ARM-based devices in their house. Like they've got an iPad or something. So why not let them run Mac OS on their iPad or something? 
because it's already ARM hardware and it's probably similar enough to the ARM Mac hardware that's going to come out because the rumors are that the ARM Mac hardware is based on the A14 chip that's going to be in the next gen iPhone and all that other stuff, right? So it's not like Apple's making an entirely, the rumor is that Apple's not making an entirely different architecture. It's all derived from the same iPhone chip that they're making a million of. Anyway, let everybody run Mac OS on their iPads or maybe even on their iPhones or have it run on your iPhone and have it project to an external display and all sorts of theories like this. They are technically plausible, but they don't strike me as likely simply because the the straightforward solution of just giving people a Mac with an ARM chip in it, even if it's some weird slap together thing that you have to ask for back at the end, Apple's done it before and it worked perfectly fine. Like if they have a better solution, if they have, you know, if they've already done the work to make iPads do this because that's how they've been developing internally, sure, maybe they could do it, but I feel like Apple's going to do the thing that is the most straightforward for them. And without knowing for a fact that Apple has been developing Mac OS and running it on the iPad internally, I have to think that they're going to give people, give developers access to something that looks and behaves like a Mac, but it's got an ARM chip inside it. And then they'll probably want it back. See, I, 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 you're probably right about most of that. One major difference though, that we have to consider is that the number of Apple developers is so much bigger now than it was back then. And even if you rule out all the iOS-only developers, which is probably most of them, even just the number of Mac developers is way bigger now than it was in 2005 and 2006. So it wouldn't surprise me if the idea of, like, give people something that they have to then give back at the end is just too large of a scale to do this time. Um, Like, to make that, it would just be so... First of all, it would probably be like incredibly wasteful, <laughs> like all the electronics that you'd be manufacturing and then having to recycle I at mean, the end of that. They could let them keep it too. Like, there's no reason, you know, you'd, it would be useless for, for you because it would probably be unsupported by the next actual release version of macOS, but you could have them keep it too. But I, I see what you're saying about the scale. Although, uh, speaking of scale, didn't they do something similar with Apple TV development? Obviously, again, a smaller user base, right? Yeah, I got one, but it was, it was, it was, you just, you paid a dollar. And you, because they had to charge you something for some kind of accounting reason, so you, so you signed up as like you you filed like a request to get one of these, and if they granted it, and it was through through the developer account system, and if they granted your request, you were you were allowed to buy an Apple TV for one dollar, and I th- I forget whether that was actually before they were available. I think I don't think it was. I, th- I think any, anyone else could buy them as well, but you just got yours maybe like a week ahead of time or something, or like it, it was obviously certainly cheaper. Um, and that was that was the main issue there, but um, I mean, it was something like this. Like, it's very possible that you know they they can't really release a whole Mac to the public and with with very little software available for it. Although the funny thing is, like, if you look at how much software people run on their Macs that is not made by Apple, like, I mean, yeah, most of us run stuff that is not made by Apple. But I bet Apple could sell a MacBook Air tomorrow. <laughs> that only ran their software for the first few months that it was out and it wouldn't sell zero copies microsoft ran that experiment microsoft did windows on arm that had very little support from third-party applications and you know it didn't sell that well but i mean it was a product that they sold yeah they released it so I, i think what's what's possibly a more likely outcome here is maybe apple sells a laptop but only like they they actually sell like this is the first our Mac. Here it is. It's a MacBook Air or something, or maybe a 13-inch MacBook Pro. Like some, it's something like that. With you know, it's the, exactly what you said. It's like whatever the current you know case and design, it'll look exactly like what we sell now because we're not going to put any additional work into this like you know kind of beta product. 
and it'll just have ARM guts inside of it. And it'll be compatible with almost nothing, but you can use it for development. And maybe they sell it only through the developer portal. Like maybe you have to log into your developer account to buy it. And then, you know, you sell it to developers and you, you, you may, maybe you even call it a beta product, you know, and that way you, you try to keep it out of the hands of the general, general public as much as possible. Um, or at least like discourage people in some way from using it. Maybe it can only run software that you sign with your developer ID and nothing else. Like, you know, so, somehow you make it so that most regular people are not going to want to get their hands on one. Um, but then, you know, you, otherwise it's a regular product that, that developers can buy. I don't know, something like that, maybe. Well, well, the way they would make it discourage is they would say, like, look, this is not going to be supported by the next version of macOS. Like, we're not, this is not a supported machine. It's just for you porting your software from that point on. Like, pretend, pretend no one gave back those Pentium 4s. Those would have not been supported by later versions of the operating system unless Apple explicitly did it. Like someone in the chat room was saying that it used BIOS instead of EFI. I forget if that was the case, but they were, that was a weird machine, right? And so as long as you're upfront about what you're getting into here and tell people like this is not – don't buy this expecting to use this as your Mac. That's not going to happen. This is for your – you know, it's a developer transition kit. It's a dev platform. And like I said, with game consoles, it's ample precedent. Every console game that's available at launch was developed – on a dev kit on provisional weird mongrel hardware that everybody you know like the whole world of console development this is how it works you get a dev kit the dev kit uh, often is very very different from the console that's released to people uh, you know in hardware and software especially if you're going to be there on launch uh, and you know those dev kits they historically they've actually been very expensive um, but they ship them to developers all over the world, and you know I don't I don't know if there there are more Mac developers than there are console developers. I have to imagine there's more console developers when you add you know Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo all together. There's got to be more of them, and it's it's a proven system. And then again, in the console world, they charge you thousands of dollars for these dev kits, which are useless to you essentially, especially if you have one of the early ones before you know the, the console actually launches because they may be uh, you know have major differences to the actual production hardware. Um, but that's how, that's how the sausage is made. So, and again, you can't buy, you can't just go into, you know, target and buy uh, a PS5 dev kit. Certainly now you can't, you can't buy a PS4 dev kit. You have to go through Sony and you have to be a developer and, you know, so I feel like there are established systems for this. The developer transition kit was weird because it was a rental and they wanted you to return it. But then in some ways that's kind of an Apple move where they don't want these things out there in the world. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's the, the firmest way to explain to people this will not be your Mac for the next five years. Like, we're not going to support it. Just pretend it didn't exist. It is a developer transition kit. It's a kit. It's not a, it's not a <laughs> Mac. It's a, just a kit. Um, the reason I think people keep going back to the iPad thing is, like I said, I think the only reason they will do that is if they've already been doing that internally. If the way they've developed this is internally, rather than making a dev kit, they're like, well, we've already got iPad hardware, so why don't we just use that as a dev kit inside Apple? If they've already done all of that work, then yeah, they'll just do that for external people as well. But I question whether they would do that work internally because internally is exactly where they make these weird transition kit things. So I'll be very surprised if the iPad is the transition kit. But if it is, that's got to be something that they've been doing internally for you know for for a long time. And they're just saying we're we're going to leverage that work. Why would we repeat that work with something that looks more like a Mac? Certainly the iPads are fast enough and we've already got this cool keyboard thing and, you know, we're all set to go. It's already a weird, uh, not so floppy laptop. So let's just go with that. But <laughs> we'll see. Gruber had a big post about how on Apple like it seems and how it would be weird to have a touch screen with an OS that isn't touch based. And, 
Now, the, the, when I read that Guru post, often uh, on Daring Fireball, there's a post that I will read and nod my head. And I'm like, I agree with every single part of this. But when I get to the end of it, I start to have flashbacks of the earlier Daring Fireball post from years ago where I agree with every single part of it. But it turned out like all of it is sound, logical reasoning, but it turned out to be wrong for like, because like Apple going to Apple. Sometimes they just do something different. <laughs> it's like, boy, I agreed with that post. Everything made perfect sense. And it does. But it's like, yeah, we just decided to do something different. It's like, oh, well, like that's that's the difficulty of predicting Apple. It's just an organization full of people. And sometimes decisions happen one way or another based on the things you don't know about or just sometimes whim. Like it's like when you do if you ever try to make a decision, do the big pros and cons column. It can be misleading. And you're like, look, I've got all these pros and very few cons. But like the second con down is may cause death. And you look at the list and it's like, if, if, you, if you did a blog post that just showed the pros, you'd be like, wow, this is a slam dunk. Look at all these pros. They all make sense. They're all logical. But if you don't dwell on this one con that's like may cause death, eh, you know. So anyway, I'm not saying the iPad uh, developer transition kit may cause death, but, you know, it really depends on how much you feel, how, how, how you feel about that keyboard and, uh, you know, touching the screen for you on your Mac. I, uh... I received a text message from someone inside your house, John, and it said something along the lines of, I have never been more tempted to touch John's screen than I am right now. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me so happy. And I believe I told this individual uh, that they should not. And even though you were bad cop that week, I still didn't think that they should. That's how you know I love you, John. No, no one should touch my screen. Why would anyone do that? (laughs) I don't know. I have no, I, I can't think of a thousand different reasons, John. Was that on, I forget, was that on this show or on Rectifs where I talked about my screen? It must have been last episode on this show, It was right? this show. You mentioned that it's never yeah. been touched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why break the streak? I, I can fix that. No, you can't. You're way over there. <laughs> <laughs> Social distancing is saving my screen. Oh, my God. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Notion. And please give to the charities that we link to in the show notes. And finally, thank you to our new members. That's really great if you signed up, and uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you very much, and we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T, Marco Armin, S I R A C. USA Syracuse, it's accidental. the after show and i can tell the uh, the most obnoxious uh, slash funny slash still obnoxious idea i had for the pricing tiers you know so <laughs> tiff came up with the 8 16 32 thing and we were like oh and we don't want to do that let's just start simple blah blah i'm like wait a second what if we have a thing where the more members we get the higher pricing tiers you unlock right <laughs> so <laughs> so to be, so to be clear like it's not like like when pinboard launched 
it, it's like every member that subscribed added like a, a cent or a tenth of a cent or something to the price for the next member. Mm-hmm. So it's not that. You're saying you could still sign up, but you would have the ability to pay more money as everything went up. Oh, it's not even that. It's like so the people would sign up and like and the original just have the one pricing tier and they'd all sign up at that one pricing tier. But then like after you get 100 members, you unlock the second pricing tier. Now, those people who already <laughs> signed up, they got their pricing tier and it's still there. But they've unlocked the ability for future people to pay more if they want. It's totally sensical. <laughs> right, right. And the more members you get, the higher pricing tiers get unlocked. It doesn't mean anyone ever has to pay them. They just get unlocked. It's, I see a lot of stuff like this in video games where you like, unlock harder difficulties. Like, why am I unlocking a harder difficulty? I had just enough trouble <laughs> getting through this. Congratulations. You've unlocked nightmare mode. <laughs> I don't want to unlock nightmare mode. It took me a week to get through the hard mode. I mean, again, Tiff enjoys that. But anyway, I thought it was funny, the idea of the, the more people sign up, the, the, the more you unlock. It. Mostly because just it would be a curiosity, like to see, will anyone, like if you unlock the $128 a month mode, it's like, will anyone sign up for that? And then each week we could say, so far, no takers on the $128 a month <laughs> one. But if we get more members, we'll unlock 256 <laughs> Yeah, and like one of the biggest reasons why we decided not to have multiple pricing tiers is like, you know, eight bucks a month. We recognize that's like slightly premium for for what we're offering. For you know, what other podcasts and YouTube channels charge for their Patreons, we're at we're like right at or slightly above like the basic level. I, I feel like five and ten dollars a month are very common price points for these kinds of things. So eight is right there in the middle. I think I would have a hard time sleeping at night if somebody was paying us sixty four dollars a month. <laughs> for for this i I wouldn't have any trouble at all i (laughs) i was the proponent of the open text field if you want just type a number type a number you want to pay us per month and we will accept that uh but (laughs) no one's going to actually do that so this is just funny things to think about but but then again we thought that idea of putting the wheels on the shirt for four dollars actually was funny too and that was the most popular shirt because people are weird that's true (laughs) so anyway we're starting simple but we have a lot of ideas uh real-time follow-up with regard to shirts by the way uh i think it took uh, if I recall correctly, Alex Cox sent me a text message at exactly 8.01 Eastern time saying, is the shirt still available? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was extremely well played. And I was I was very grumbly, but I thought it was very well done. Um, but I definitely did get a surprising amount of tweets that did not strike me as trolling. Of people saying, oh, gosh, I did forget. I knew I was going to forget. And I forgot. So all you people who are responsible <laughs> and actually buy when, when we ask you to, I appreciate that because you will be surprised how many people say, oh, oh, no. Oh, it was me this month or this this season, I guess I should say. It was me. It was me this time. It was almost me this time. Yeah, I, w- I always go down to the wire. It, it has been me. Like I've said in the past, <laughs> I've forgotten to buy our own shirts. Yeah. You know, my kids, my kids wear them and, you know, we bought and then sometimes you just, you're like, oh, I'll get around to it. I, I miss, what did I miss? I think I missed the, remember we did the multicolor shirts where it was like all different colors. I forgot to order those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ordered all my stuff for this, like within eight hours of it ending. <laughs> now I was, I think I was the first of us cause we all use the same account, you know, so we can get it at cost. And I think I was the first one of the three of us to do it. And I was, I thought like eight hours out. So maybe I was more than eight hours, but I certainly didn't think I was, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of extra time. I, I definitely procrastinated. Normally I order one of everything like at the beginning of any sale, because what you don't want is for somebody to get to the site and see that there's been zero sales. Like that just looks bad. Uh, right. Yeah, so like yeah. I always want to 
ha- like put in any of our orders first before we announce it to the public so that way they get there and it's like oh look people are buying this it's happening right so like because you don't want you don't want there to be a big zero there that's why we all signed up for atp member accounts yeah before you came to the site <laughs> yep i i signed up for the first one before i told anybody hey here's the link <laughs> i signed up for the second one and then i deleted it yep <laughs> <laughs> you, hey you got to test if account deletion works yeah, well, you should. You could just like uh, now that we've deleted those numbers, you can just assign uh, two to the auto increment column that probably has like seven in it for my thing now. There is no auto increment column in this. This is a random ID. <sighs> Such a weirdo. <laughs> what? Uh, there's the UUID people, uh, there's the auto increment people, and I am an auto increment person. Sorry. Yeah. To be fair, this is not a UUID. It's a random integer. There's a difference. Uh, why are you doing that's you're making me even more upset yeah, all right wait, well why? everyone why? it's your job to have so many members sign up that it shows marco why it's a bad idea to use a random integer as a unique key in a table why it's a really big integer uh, yeah that's what everybody says there's a reason <laughs> there's a reason you UIDs exist it's a really big integer it'll be fine everybody we now we need to have what like uh two and a half billion signups and then we will show marco the error of his ways <laughs> it's not 32 bit uh, 64 bit sure okay well <laughs> anyway there's a reason uid doesn't my school have native support for uid columns probably <sighs> what are you just making it yeah okay all right MySQL has all sorts of support for like native storage of you know slightly complex value types that you're but you're generally better off not using that support because it's like it's well, weird when they say native though it's probably all strings under the covers anyway knowing mysql yeah right <laughs> it's like not actually native like packed binary support for uuids like real databases have it's always just like oh well there's some code that will generate a thing but we store it as a string in a varchar column i just went to our mem- member admin page we don't have anything on there yet huh nothing yeah i want to see account man you got to give me account I can tell you, we have 117 members so far. Hey, that's excellent! I'm really pleased by that. How many people are How many people are on the stream? Like 400. Oh, that's brutal! I just want to know. <laughs> you know, like, like I feel like the people who listen live are like our absolute like biggest fans because some of them are up like in the middle of the night or in early morning and weird times because of time zone. So if you're listening to the live stream and listen to all this BS and everything, uh, you are very likely to be a super fan who at least consider becoming a member. So. This is like the best case scenario for signups. I mean, in all fairness, we have a like 25% conversion rate among this group. Like, all right, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is that's the best case. Yeah. Obviously, there will not 25% of listeners will not sign up. That would be amazing. Like, I I don't think I've ever seen any kind of optional payment for anything that was above that was above like 10%. Yeah, you won't even you won't break double digits for sure. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. not sure we're going to I'm not sure we're going to break 1%. This is another thing we've discussed endlessly: optimism versus pessimism. How many people are going to want to <laughs> sign up for the membership? So we'll see. Yeah, Casey basically thinks no one's going to sign up. I think everyone's going to sign up, and John's kind of in the middle. That, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> uh, I was the most pes- I was the most pessimistic for a long time until we started talking to other people who had membership programs and learned what their conversions are. And I'm like, all right, well, I feel like we could probably do about as well as them. So I, I was like, I was super pessimistic in the beginning but I've, I've been coming around so you're right i am kind of in the middle now yeah like i would i would love to get five percent that, that's kind of my target of like i think we can probably do it i don't think it's going to be super easy to get five percent but i don't think it's out of reach like I, I think i think that's that's kind of like my my goal. marco ever the optimist but but that would be a pretty good goal but if you look at like you know hello internet you know like other kind of like nearby shows and their yeah. proportion of but, it, but it's different because like 
everyone offers different stuff. Mm-hmm. Like some people offer nothing, and it's just like pay to support us. Can we can we tell the live streamers the thing that I didn't mention in the show that I desperately wanted to, but you didn't want to? Uh, I forget. Oh, the SKTP priority thing. That was a terrible idea. No, the CB thing. The CB thing. Oh yeah oh. yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I can mention it. Yeah yeah, go for I it. I think that's fair. So someone mentioned in the chat before discounts on merch. I think that we're absolutely going to do that, right? We don't have a merch sale now, so it's irrelevant, which is part of why we didn't want to talk about it. But if you're listening to the live stream right now and you're wondering, hey, are they going to have merch discount codes for members? Uh, yeah, we are planning to do that. Yeah, we when already worked we, it out with Cotton Bureau ever. and everything. But the, pro- yeah. the problem was that, like, yeah, we didn't want to launch a membership immediately after our merch sale ended and say, next time we sell merch you can get a little discount i mean i wanted to do that because i think people understand the arrow of time and can say yeah i understand you didn't launch the membership until after the sale was over like we didn't this is not ideal timing okay we're not we didn't like coronavirus kind of forced our hand a little bit on this like we've been talking about it for a while so things get kind of rushed but anyway if you're wondering if i sign up for a membership is there a possibility of discounts on merch in the future the answer is yes yeah, and yeah, and then, and we we know the timing on this is weird. Like we, yep. you know, right now is not a great time to be, you know, launching a whole new thing. I was like, hey, everyone, give us extra money. Like, mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not the, not the greatest time. Um, but but we're in it for the long haul here. Like it's yeah. not like you know. So it just there's no time like the present. So we just we understand that it's weird. Everything's a, a bit weird now. But yeah, yeah, and we also and we didn't want to take any time out of our WBDC show to do it then. Yeah, definitely not. So yeah, you know, so like we did, and, but we wanted to have it in place by then because we know it's we're going to be very busy with all the WBDC content for probably weeks afterwards. So like, yeah, it's it's a whole thing. It, there was there were there were a lot of considerations that went into this timing, even though it it seems like it sucks. Basically, it sucks less than other timing would have sucked. <laughs> that, that would be nearby. Uh, I would like to state for the record that. I am not above, I'll call them stretch goals for lack of a better terminology, but if John really does want to play Destiny with Marco and me and do it in some way that, you know, we can have people watch it on Twitch or something like that, if, I don't know what the number is, but if enough people become members, okay, fine, sure. You want to make me suffer? Fine. I'm volunteering both of you for this. The only reason (laughs) we're not doing it right now is because I don't know how. (laughs) <laughs> that's the only reason we're not doing it right now like and tiff probably knows how we'll do that as soon as we can make cooking with john i've I wanted Ooh. to make i wanted to make a cooking show with john just not me cooking just like filming john cooking and you know that's harder than what i was but i'm just explaining you just need to show screen like screen sharing like now this is like a thing with cameras in a kitchen i know that's complicated but still like imagine how good cooking with john would be no i disagree if you're gonna do it then it needs to be john tries to teach casey how to cook oh yeah well that's that's the whole destiny angle is i'm trying to teach you to how to play yeah, destiny right? that's the funny right. part john teaches casey to cook over zoom right <laughs> do you remember when we were all at john's house and i shredded or grated a cheese unsatisfactorily oh yes he gave me like 10 minutes of crap about it like someone who, like someone who had never been in a kitchen before <laughs> if that's about accurate <laughs> and so can you imagine like I, I, I will commit that I don't know what the number is, but I am ready, willing, and well, maybe not able, but I'm ready and willing to figure out how to make this all possible, so that if we get enough members, no, the the best thing would be to do what Queer Eye does, where like John teaches Casey something about cooking, and then Casey has to do it, and John has to watch, but he can't say anything. <laughs> That's brutal. <laughs> oh, 
Anyway, you're distracting from my Destiny idea, which I think is much more feasible. And Tiff okay. knows how to do all this game streaming stuff. And maybe when the PS5 is out, like we'll set something up and we can figure it out. But that's like in the distant future when we get our act together. We have all, all sorts of wacky ideas for things that don't make sense to do, except for if there's this, this group of people who are like paying to be members. And that would be like, you know, member specific. Again, like for, for the chat room people, if you have ideas, even though we've discussed like probably all of them, send them in because it's like you're essentially voting by like, not that this is democracy, but like if a million people say that they want this or don't want that, that will influence what we may or may not do in the future. So if you have ideas about member specific stuff that you want, feel free. The only thing that's really off the table is removing things from the show for the free people because as we said, we don't want to do that. So like, you know, oh, I think you should make the after show. Put it behind a paywall. Nope, that we're not doing that. Yeah, we we thought of that, but we decided not to do it. Right. So you know, that's not that. Again, if if ninety percent of our listeners become members, you know, we'll put the whole show behind a paywall. But that's not going to happen. So <laughs> don't worry about. It. <laughs> yeah, some of you are are asking for the unedited live stream, um, similar to what the incomparable does with their bootleg feeds. That is something we've talked about. We've actually talked about that more than arguably anything else. I really don't want to do it because I think it sucks. But if uh, I don't know. Yeah, you can imagine listeners in the live stream. You know why Marco doesn't want to do it because it's going to (laughs) sound crappy and it's not going to be edited. And like, you know, everyone who listens to the live stream knows what the live stream is like. I was in favor of it because it's a thing we're doing for free anyway. And we would still do it for free, by the way. We would still stream it for free. Like everyone who's listening now, you'd still be able to listen for free. And do whatever you want. But this would be like, what if you're not awake at that time and you still want to hear the garbagey live stream? There would be a feed with the garbagey live stream in it for members. But maybe nobody wants that. I don't know. Like, anyway, but like we started simple. We're, we're thinking of things. We'll, we'll figure it out as we go along. But if that's something that you want, write in and tell us. Uh, you know, baby steps. We still got to, you know, figure all this stuff out and get it churning along and see how many support requests we're going to get from people who can't figure out the website or whatever. 